to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal with your host, Conan Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rock about music, rock and roll, and cover power. The thing is, though... If you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with shot and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. It's the real world. I choose to go my life too. That's okay. It means something. It means something. And take that away. You know, that's my take. What's yours? Protonic Reversal! That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed. It is a science thing. It is a science place. It is a scientific fact that we are all up in your face. It is time for the one, the only, Protonic Reversal. And welcome to it. We have another guest from from Down Under today. And I'm very excited to talk to him. It's uh, normally... So I'm very pleased to announce that on one of my favorite bands of all time, The Birthday Party, uh, the, the drummer, the, the enigmatic uh, Phil Calvert. Am I saying? Am I saying? I've never realized. I've never heard your last name spoken aloud, Phil. Is it? Am I saying it correctly? Yeah, you are Calvert. Very, uh, very popular name in the United States. A lot of people in Maryland called Calvert. There's, uh, there's whiskey. There was uh, all kinds of alcohol called Calvert. My wife is forever buying things on uh, eBay that uh, old bits of you know barroom paraphernalia that light has, up and has your name on it. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, I'm glad because uh, for me that seems like it makes the most sense but i get a little paranoid about it because of course my name is conan and it's it's pronounced like the fellow with with the talk show uh but i also uh, came of age with the conan the barbarian movies being very popular yeah. and, and I'm, I'm very sensitive to uh if not wanting to get everyone's name exactly right i, I certainly don't want to get it exactly wrong and uh, yeah. certainly, certainly not with someone i admire so much thank you so much for being on the show man uh, that's, uh, that's my pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm getting you giving me quite quite the build up here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's a pretty big deal for me and for quite a few people as well. I guess let's just uh, kick things off relatively easy with you know how are you how are you dealing with quarantine right now? How is uh, how is your oh, yeah, life? That's, uh... We're, Australia's kind of doing pretty good because, uh, like, we've only got 25 million people down here. So it's, uh, uh, and being a, an island kind of continent uh, with only a few kind of large metropolis, they've, they've managed to really keep it in check. So uh, we've only got 100 people have uh, uh, died from it so far. Uh, so, and we've had, uh, I think, 7,000 infections. I was doing a, a bit of rough mathematics the other day. If we were running at the same rate as the United States, we'd have about 1,500 people dead, or the same as the UK would be something like that, about 1,500 people dead. So as a per capita thing, we're, doing, we're still doing pretty good. Um, the isolation thing hasn't bugged me. I, uh, fun, one fun fact for especially this show is it's put me um, – Back, I'm doing like, you know, 45 minutes to an hour of practice a day, which I haven't done in years. And uh, it's amazing. All, all these shops that uh, had uh, sort of evaporated many <laughs> moons 
all magically reappearing with practice. Who would have thought, you know? So that's good. The neighbors don't mind. I've got a soundproof room out the back, so that's all good. And uh, my wife and I, we we uh, we are used to spending a lot of time together. We had our own business together, and we've sort of lived and worked and traveled uh, together for like the last twenty five years. So uh, that's all pretty pretty normal for us not having friends around is, is kind of weird but we've been doing a lot of zooming and uh i'm fortunate that i uh, don't have to worry too much about you know whether i got a job or anything like that to pay the rent or anything so pretty 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 doing it pretty easy down here actually certainly compared to other areas who uh, are hit much harder and uh, have much more oh, where, where, are you, where, are you, where are you in the states uh so the so I live in Wisconsin, so Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in, in okay, the Midwest, okay. and I'm from California, from the Bay Area, which which is doing it. Okay. So it's a kind of a study in contrast right now because the Bay Area is uh, very much doing things right, doing things safely, doing doing things you know the way that uh, sane human beings would do, and. Mm. Wisconsin is currently at war with itself, where you have the governor trying to do one thing and then the legislature trying to do another, uh, and there's varying degrees of level to which it's being taken seriously. And it, it's almost as if, you know, it, would, it would be better if, if you just like picked one, right? Like if you just went with, uh, like, okay, full anarchy or, you know. Uh, it's crazy though, because. We've got uh, we we have states here, but we don't have as many as you guys, and they're they're kind of like larger slabs of land. But uh, there's there's you know sort of like eight main sort of jurisdictions, and the same thing. Like the states are making their own rulings. But I've got to say that in Australia, all of the uh, the leaders of each state have been doing a phenomenal job, better than the federal guys uh, at, at actually making things happen and, and or not happen as the case may be but uh, yeah it's going to be a massive hit on the economy I think it, we're going to be feeling the pain of it for a long time to come not just uh, the worry about the disease and all that kind of stuff but actually the uh, uh, you know what it's going to do to people's livelihoods and their jobs and, and, and how things go from here on but uh, uh, hopefully there's a lot of people uh, locked down and writing a whole lot of really great tunes uh, practicing their instruments so when this all comes down we can uh, get the fantastic live music scene going again in Melbourne and all over the world because uh, whilst it's great to listen to all our records and stuff, uh, we really miss going out to see bands. Yeah. You, you, know? <laughs> you, you don't know how much you miss it until you can't do it. It's, it's like I can't remember who I was speaking to, but it was something along the lines of, uh, you know, Oh, you know, the, the person was saying, oh, I, I tend to be like, a, you know, I want to stay home anyway. But, you know, the fact that somebody's telling me to, like, you know, well, it's, it's not my idea now, so I don't want to do it, <laughs> which I think is very yeah, there's, there's a lot of that. Too many people are getting their information on the whole disease and stuff from fucking you. Oh, sorry, from YouTube and stuff, you know, and, and from Google and actually, you know, yeah. the science. So the people who are trying to keep us uh, safe and uh, yeah I mean uh, of course we, we watch uh, with uh, great uh, consternation and amusement uh, uh, your glorious leader uh, in on, on the TV but let's not talk about that let's talk about Let's talk about music. Yeah, I was going to say we we do not we do not believe me. I, I so people people uh, look to this show to get away from that guy and uh, and away from those things. So let, let's let's not de- delve too deep into. It. Let's just say that uh, there's there's a reason why I'm very glad that I do this. And uh, you know, yeah. I may not be able to tour myself or 
any of the normal things or even go see shows. But the fact that I'm able to do this and have these conversations with folks is uh, is very lovely. And I don't take it for granted at all in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so it's interesting to me that you you said that you were playing because I was going to ask if you uh, if you were if you play drums at, at all these days because I know that uh, yeah, it's yeah. been a, it's been a bit since you've been in an active band you know you've done some of the production stuff it's 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 uh, yeah I'm still doing that I'd like okay so my uh, I live in a, a, a an old um, church in a, in a city suburb of Melbourne and in the back half of this I've got a you know pretty decent kind of project studio which I can fit a whole band in although I do tend to do whole bands in like you know fully fledged studios and then just do uh, overdubs and mixing and stuff here um, but you know I've got my practice room out there um, I still uh, play for mostly for other people on records when I'm asked to uh, I did uh, uh, get together with a, a, a few a, a, a friend of mine and his son and we were playing some kind of like uh, uh, lounge type uh, lightweight jazz type uh, okay, kind sure. of yeah 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 stuff which is just a, a different vibe I've learned some of that kind of you know I've, I've played some of that style in a heavier sort of format but uh, it was just uh, and it was that that old gag of basically getting uh, contemporary songs that may have been really heavy but then doing them in a, a lightweight jazz treat oh, right sure yeah the, the first player and stuff like that which and then it's kind of like you're waiting how long before someone picks that's a sound garden song you know and stuff right. like that <laughs> Watch that uh, dawning of acknowledgement of like, where do I know this from? Ah, right, it's that. Okay, exactly. Uh, so I did a bit of that, but mostly no. Mostly uh, I play on records that I'm either producing for people or people ask me to guest on records for them. Uh, and I just finished. Uh, actually, I'm just sending it off to France for mastering this afternoon. An album for a girl called Astrid Mundy, and uh, Astrid used to be married to a guy called Tony Cohen, who's quite a famous Australian. Uh, a record producer he did a lot of well he did all the birthday party records uh, and he um, and he did a lot of Nick's solo records as well early on also did bands like The Cruel Sea and um, uh, Paul Kelly like a lot of a lot of Australian a lot of, diff- a lot of different things that uh, yeah yeah from down and there. he sadly he passed away a couple of years back and I reconnected with uh, Astrid who was at one stage like quite a you know up and coming artist and I said jeez have you done anything lately she goes oh I've got these songs and so she sent me some stuff and I loaded up in the studio and then I put some I played some uh, drums and I put some keys and guitars and stuff on there and I sent it back to her I said what do you think of this vibe and so we started working back and forth remotely uh, she's in Sydney then I got her down here for four or five days and we just cleaned everything up and I've been mixing that for a while so yeah I mean I did a I did a young band. Uh, well, they're a combination of two bands. I did, I, I did a band here called Masses, uh, and they went and toured in the States, and they ended up with um, uh, being involved with two members from a band called, uh-oh, I can't remember their name, but you know, the drummer plays in Sheer Mag. <laughs> the drummer plays in Sheer Mag when they tour, okay. and the band was 
crim, crimson violet or crimson. Uh, anyway, uh, anyway, so what we had was two players from America, two players from Australia, and they put together this band called Terremoto, uh, and uh, which is Italian for earthquake. And basically, uh, they did a, a record back and forth between some guys in the Bay Area, a studio there, and uh, my studio here. So all the Aussie stuff was cut here. All the drums and the vocals were done in a studio in Oakland. And then uh, everything got sent back to me and I mixed it. And then it got put out on a label in Europe. So, yeah. You don't right. happen, this This is going to, to say this is a niche topic would be an understatement, but you don't happen to remember the studio in Oakland, do you? Was it Shark Bite? Uh, was it Tiny Telephone? Survivor oh, Sound? And, oh, I, I, I'd have to look back into my emails. Oh, what was he? There was, there was a main engineer there, guy. Um, oh, what was his name? No, I'm sorry. I'd, I'd have to go, like, That's the, fine. Look, email me up. And I'll, I'll tell you, because that's obviously people you might know. You yeah, know, so I mean, I, I lived in Oakland, California for uh, 22 years and uh, played in a band almost okay. the entire time. So it, it's highly unlikely that it would be someone I don't know. And I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. So, it, so the, drummer's name's, uh, the drummer's name is Giacomo Zatti. Uh, he's Italian, but he's been in the States. And the band was called something, something Crimson or something Scarlet or something like that. I had a girl singer. Uh, and these guys are very much in the kind of indie punk kind of, you know, lots of seven inch vinyl kind of world of, uh, of that. And sure. they, yeah. Well, I like that. So that's the kind of stuff I've been doing. I, I still play. I practice. I uh, I have a, a bad addiction, which is collecting vintage drums. So that <laughs> it's an expensive habit that requires a lot of space. <laughs> yeah. Well, my wife is very understanding. You know, something arrives. She goes, "Is that a snare drum?" I go, "Yeah." She goes, "She goes, but you've got eight of those. I go, this one's different." <laughs> yeah, so she's very understanding. She doesn't go one in, one out, or you know how many guitars have you got. She just goes, "That's cool." <laughs> well, know? that's 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 very good. That's that's a uh, that's a sustainable relationship for uh, someone who's a musician. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Well, we have we have we have understanding on on both fronts. She uh, uh, currently involved in an art project, which is uh, repurposing and sculpting things out of. Uh, um, yeah, found objects and uh, things from, you know, thrift shops and junk stores and things. And uh, it's actually going pretty well. She's getting quite a lot of success with that. So that's cool. Oh, that's so, brilliant. Okay. So so this was an artsy household then, which is which is always... We, we, well, we, we, were, we were both involved in a very serious commercial endeavor for 15 years together. And then we sold that last year. And so now's our time to, uh, you know, really enjoy our artsy kind of pursuits. Do things for yourself, you kind of live it up yeah. a little bit. Well, it's it's funny that you mentioned also too with the you know doing the the loungy songs and things along those lines. I, I was I was thinking thinking back to all this all the way back to the beginning to the boys next door, and yep. uh, if I remember correctly, and, and again you have to you have to understand that some some stuff gets lost in translation through history. But uh, you, that, you folks got together in school, and it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, was it? Would you start off playing covers and things along those lines, or like what? How, oh, how yeah. did that inception come about? Uh, well, uh, ooh. in the earliest kind of uh, configuration of anything at all, it was myself and Mick Harvey uh, and another chap called Brett Purcell, who was a bass player. And we had a band in like second or third form and played, you know, covers of. Uh, anymore we were really just grappling with getting on top of our instruments more than anything else and sure, yeah. doing all that kind of stuff uh then nick arrived at our school in about uh uh third, well you 
you know, like what's I know had a third form, which is like, a, you know, year nine or something like that, or, you know, halfway through junior high or whatever you guys say. And uh, he um, uh, basically when, you know, he was more obviously uh, front man material, but he also played piano and uh, we all became like good friends and started doing lot, lots of hanging out together and, you know, swapping records. Have you heard this? Have you heard that? And we get together and jam you know, whenever we kind of could or could afford to and stuff like that in someone's, you know, garage at the back of their mum and dad's house. But mostly, yeah, we started playing school dances and things. It was all covers. It was, uh, you know, Alice Cooper, Dave Bowie, sure, yeah. uh, Sensational Alex Harvey Band, um, uh, yeah, you know, Stones, Sabbath, you know, I mean, it could have been, you know, all, all kinds of stuff at various stages. We had a, a guitarist called John who was a, a very sleek, uh, dexterous kind of speedy, would have probably done well in L.A. in the 80s kind of thing. <laughs> uh, could have been in a good hair band, but he uh, uh, sadly, uh, after we finished secondary school, uh, he ended up uh, going to the United States for a period of time and uh, he uh, suffered uh, some kind of uh, a mental breakdown not long after that. And uh, just uh, just as we were getting it together and finding our kind of uh, beginning of our uh, punk and new wave uh, footing, a different set of covers, plus always some originals. Um, even back when we were doing covers, there were a couple of you know badass originals, you know, written by Nick or something in there as well. Uh, and then, yeah, so just as that was kind of hitting the straps, John was sort of kind of theoretically going to be in that version of the band, but then he was never really able to get it together. Then he came along to one uh, rehearsal and. You know, you can't have straight ahead buzzsaw guitar and then have one someone doing these flaming slick solos over yeah, the yeah. top because <laughs> that doesn't work. You know, so, uh, so then it was kind of like, well, this isn't working. We'll just keep it as a four piece, and uh, so we played. Uh, yeah, as a four piece, there was uh, you know probably fifty fifty covers and originals, and uh, the the way it all really really came together was that a record label in Australia um, called Mushroom Records uh, they decided that uh, they were being very successful on the kind of you know mainstream of. Uh, the music kind of scene in Australia, and they um, had decided, oh, we need to create a kind of satellite spin-off label so it's not identified with us, but that's going to pick up on this new music that's coming out at the moment. So they were trying to do a pseudo-stiff records or... Like the Australian version of, of what that label was doing. Like, meet, like so it was sort of auteured almost. I know people get really mad when you use the word auteur for non-visual mm -hmm. art mediums, but whatever. A curated yeah. experience where you know that it was a trusted brand that you could... You knew yeah. the music had like a shorthand with it, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So they, they and you know, would be I don't know what the American equivalent of that would have been at the time. You know, it would have been just some you know indie label in New York or some indie label in you know. Right. Uh, Later on, it became like the the Homestead and uh you know um oh like i'm twin tone things along those lines and then later yeah, on yes, matador yes, touch yes. and go am rap etc exactly exactly so uh they, you know, they, they got this label together and this guy was basically running around with money uh going i'm gonna make this this punk label and uh and he, he literally i i kid you not we were playing at one of our favorite haunts uh we had a little bit of a following at that time you know 50 to 100 people would turn up on a good night to see us specifically and uh 
you know, this guy walks into the band room after having, you know, stood out front and we're going, who's this fat guy in the audience? And anyway, he walks in <laughs> and he goes, hi. And we go, hi, yeah, so we don't know. And, and he goes, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen those movies where a guy comes up to a young band and walks into the band room and says, I'm going to make you a star. And we go, yeah. He goes, well, I'm that guy. <laughs> What 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 a what an announcement! What a what a way to start yeah, it! This is, this is hilarious, man. So this is literally we we're, we're just going like bullshit, you know. Anyway, so um, uh, but no, the guy put together and what he did was he made a sampler. So he basically got about um eight or so bands in Australia that were seen were seen to be part of that vanguard of there being you know a new wave kind of scene, and he put together this uh, sampler. But of course, uh, as as in the, the the ways of all great record companies, they uh, well they, they focused on us and one other band as probably being the most likely to have a hit, and uh, they basically. We were the only band that got three tracks on this album. Everybody else got one or two. And um, we had three tracks on this album, two which were written by us, one which was a cover, which, of course, they insisted on being a single, which was a cover of These Boots Are Made For Walking by Nancy The The Nancy Sinatra song, yeah. I was going to say that's uh, – and again, it's interesting what has uh, both stood the test of time and kind of been uh, translated down. But that is something where, because uh, because and the reason I ask is from my personal standpoint as a fan, I came to the Boys Next Door stuff uh, quite late and was like, oh, what's this? And then I was like, was this early on? And then it was like, oh yes, this is very early on. And I was like, oh okay, that makes sense. Yeah. The sad, the saddest thing out of all of that, though, Conan, I would say is that um, uh, if I could get my hands on the demos that we did for the making of that compilation album, so they shoved us in a demo studio first and said, just blam down a half dozen songs and we'll shortlist out of that what we're going to do for the album. Okay. If I could get those tapes, they were better than the final record. Right, right. Well, much in the way, especially with, you know, younger folks and, and, and younger bands you don't necessarily yeah. know every part of the process you know at the time yeah. you guys hadn't made a record right so like you don't uh-huh. even know like you know what is making a record what does that look like even you know this, uh, mm-hmm. yeah uh, we got better as, as time went on but so yeah we would have been 18 19 at the time that all went down and then that that all fell in uh, didn't fall in that much of a heap because basically the um label then decided well the next thing to do is to make some of these bands make a fully fledged album. And we actually got into the studio, made this whole complete LP. And then the label, basically the major label said to the minor label, this isn't working and and that's all done and dusted. We'll just take over these artists' contracts. We'll become, you'll now become a mushroom artist and um, <coughs> we'll take over that record and we'll put that record out. Um, and what happened really in the history of the band is that um, – we were doing quite well live, but that album, we recorded 12 tracks, uh, and then the label shelved it. They just said, there's no point putting it out. Oh, we interesting. Okay, so they, so they full on said, you know, hey, you know, we're, we're not, we don't think this is it. Like, was it a fiscal decision, or was it something where they... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, oh, they, also, they didn't think the band really had... I know, had it going on. There wasn't really momentum that had flowed from what had happened before. So we were, you know, we were doing, when we were doing that whole album, we were, you know, heavily on the road promoting the single from the previous compilation album. We were playing crazy amounts of shows and stuff. Uh, And 
Mind you, there's always been a very good live music scene, even in the regional areas. But, you know, when we turned up in country towns and played in uh, services clubs and stuff like that, it wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so- book us in. They, they, they book us in these places, and it was just you it, go, it was what? not it was not necessarily your your natural audience is probably the best way to put no, that. No, no. <laughs> but, uh, but then what happened after that was they they uh, we started playing a lot. We we said, well, screw the record company. We haven't got a deal anyway. They're not putting our record out, so we're we're still a band. Let's play, and we were building a really good live following. And then in the process of this, uh, Roland Howard joined the band, and so we then the was uh, which brought in all of Roland's songs from his previous bands, which gave us a massive repertoire. Uh, we could sure. easily play, you know, three forty-five minute sets in some of these places. We were playing, you know, uh, in, in we'd play, you know, yeah, three sets in an evening, and then you know have a, a, a support band on before. So we were pulling, started pulling really decent crowds, and so then. The record company came to us and said, "Oh fuck, you guys are doing really well." <laughs> oh, now, now they like it, huh? Now that they see that, that cool. we're, we're, we're going to put that, we're going to put that record out now. We're going. That's a year old, man. You can't put that record out now. And so I got to say, it, the, the guy who owns this Mushroom Records uh, is a guy called Michael Gudinski. And in Australia, people either hate him or they love him, uh, uh, <laughs> and a lot, a lot of people hate him. And I got to say that he's actually done a lot of good for music in Australia and he did actually at this point step in and go okay so you pick five songs off what you recorded what's on that record right and then he goes I'm going to give you X dollars uh, I'm going to give you five nights in the studio on downtime yeah. and whatever you make out of that can be side two of that record or you can make a mix of this onto record so you've got some of the songs with How You Sound Now with Roland and you've got some of the stuff we've already got in the can so we're not wasting it and gotcha. so that is okay. the album that's the album called Door Door. Door Door, and, and so so where does where does Shivers fit in uh, with that? Uh, so Shivers, Shivers, is, Shivers is part two of that. So okay. the side one is obviously all the much more kind of you can hear it's really compressed. It's a whole lot of different production, uh, and it's really not as expansive as side two, which is the where we got. And basically, we had five nights in the studio. Uh, we started at midnight and finished at seven in the morning uh, in this studio. So we, we had downtime on somebody else's uh, studio time. Uh, <laughs> these people would turn up to set up for their day session. And what it was was a, uh, a TV show here called Young Talent Time, where a lot of children all sang – uh, pop songs that they had recorded that were off the charts and stuff. And it was kind of like the, you know, like the Osmonds on steroids. Everybody smiled and looked amazing and just sang really shit songs. But uh, which, so, you know, which we, can we, you think, we think of things like American Idol. It's like not like things have changed that much, I guess, in a certain way. <laughs> I, guess, I guess. But yeah, so we did those four songs and they were, you know, and that also is when we went into that studio, that's where we met Tony Cohen. And he was very instrumental in uh, uh, opening up the studio to us as an instrument so that we actually understood better what everything did and that really I think uh, fed into uh, the future evolution of the birthday party and their sound is that we became and started to use the studio much more like an instrument than something that we feared sure absolutely and so I, I and again coming out as a fan to me it it seems like the birthday party were kind of uh, that, that band which at this point we should mention 
this is still uh, Boys Next Door. It isn't even the birthday party in, in name yet. But it, also, it seemed like it was almost like a warped take on on uh, your more unhinged parts of like the Rolling Stones or Jimi Hendrix as much as it was like Stooges and whatever. Like that, it, it seemed like <coughs> that was very much where you are coming from. <coughs> Pardon me. We, we grew up obviously. To what, and, you know, we're, we're all kind of born in the, fifth, the late 50s, or Roland, I think, was born in the early 60s. But, you know, so we're all born in the late 50s. We grew up with, you know, we, okay, we were kids, but we were you know, we were hearing Beatles when it was the Beatles. I mean, we were hearing the Stones when it was Stones, and the same with Hendrix and all that kind of stuff. It, Hendrix was, you know, literally on the radio, you know, Crosstown Traffic was was a single when I was a kid. Get a glass Total of water. Jam, too. Great song, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, uh, and uh, the same thing also, I think certain bands, I mean, I was aware of the Stooges mainly because of the connection of Bowie to Iggy uh, and being all, all over everything that Bowie ever kind of did. Uh, and uh, the other bands, more like the MC5 and, the, uh, you know, the Blue Oyster Cult and the, those kind of bands, we really main, mainly came to them through a band called Birdman. So Radio Birdman were a Sydney-based band. Yeah, the the massive and amazing Radio Birdman. Yes, they, they and they were they were they were kind of big. They had a good following in Australia, but they were you know their front guy was a, a guy called well the lead guitarist Dennis Tech was a guy who was from Detroit uh, and he had all those records. And when we first started going to see those guys and then playing supports for them. The things that was you ended up at someone's apartment afterwards, and people would literally carry records with them, you know, and go, <laughs> "Oh, I've got this single. You got to hear it." Or have yeah, you heard yeah. this album? Yeah. And that's when I first started hearing uh, bands like the MC5 and the Flaming Groovies and the Dictators. I used to hang out in record stores a lot, so then you'd start to look at those records and you'd look at what label they were on and what else was on that right. label. And, to really like you know di- dissect the record racks looking for stuff um but I, yeah i think we you know nothing exists in a vacuum everybody comes from a point of influence i think when the band got much more uh, unhinged and uh, crazier which is in the the segment just up until the point where we left and moved to England. Uh, I think, you know, we got dropped by that label that had completely, they said, that's it. We're putting that record out and then you're free of your contracts. We have nothing more to do with you. Uh, a guy called Keith Glass, who had a small label uh, called Missing Link, uh, he kind of took an interest in us and he said, look, there's no point you guys hanging around Australia with that sound. You really need to be in the UK. So all we need is a strategy to get you guys uh, to England and then when you get there, you're going to have to have material ready to put out. So he started recording us using Tony in our preferred studio and we started doing these other recordings, the first of which was an EP Five tracks right? Hee-haw? Yep. And then after Hee-haw, we did a bunch of singles to take to uh, the UK with us so we could release them when we were in the UK. And also we used uh, some of those tracks for a free giveaway single for our last gig before we left for the UK as like a door additional, you know, thanks to the fans, but also you pay and you get this, you get a free seven-inch record as well. 
I they're highly collectible stuff these days. I would, I would imagine uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh, lucky yeah, you I mean, if you was, happen to have one, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I do. But uh, anyway, the uh, uh, so like that that was kind of like the next – and that, that later, the hee-haw on those singles was later on compiled into – uh, an album which I think is called The Boys Next Door by the Birthday Party or vice versa. I'm not sure. Depending on what, what version you have. Yeah. So yeah. so when you have songs like A Catholic Skin and the hair mm. shirt coming through and yeah. which which would later be on Hee Haw, did you did you have a feeling at the time that the band was sort of hitting differently? That it was uh Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. We go we were going for a whole different thing. We we were we were really hearing what was coming out of England, not the punk stuff, but the, the post-punk stuff. And we were, and, and the stuff that was coming, you know, uh, the pop group, Gang of Four, and then, you know, out of the States bands like uh, Perubu, mm-hmm. uh, Rick, Rick Crayola, uh, you know, and then other other bands around that even, you know, I think we, you know, started listening to things like Captain Beefheart. Uh, and, and that really does feed much more into Nick's vocal style at that point in time where he was doing that kind of, you know, voice-breaking falsetto kind of stuff and things like that. Um, but – and and the, the, the lyrical content of uh, the songs was getting a bit more kind of, you know, uh, less formulaic and a bit more surreal, more image, image painting and stuff. It, yeah, uh, it, it, and, it almost seemed he was diving into kind of that southern gothic allegory that he would <clears> – <throat> obviously lay into much more later on. Yes, mind that, mind that vein more heavily later on. But the other thing too, I think you've got to put into perspective with all of this in the timeline of all of this, during the period where we were recording, recording the second side of uh, what was Door Door and the ensuing period after, this is a very short period. So, uh, you know, in uh, the very beginning of 79, we're in the studios recording Shivers uh, by the end of 79, uh, the first months of 1980, we moved to the UK. So in that period, that album came out, Hee Haw came out, the free single giveaway went, and we left and we moved and in. The, physically in moved to a different country. Now, granted, I, I understand that, especially with folks, it seems like th- th- there's a, a UK, Australia, you know, as much as there's physical distance, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like a, that big of a deal to folks within... <laughs> Within the UK, uh, it's mm. it's very hard to understand for somebody from the states because it's like, wait a minute, aren't those different parts of the world? But it seems like it's very free flowing those two places. Yeah, well, you know, it's, 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 uh, okay. For, uh, the history lesson that is, of course, we we were part or are part of the Commonwealth, so okay. it was a, you know it was uh, it was under the auspices of that kind of like you know colonial kind of uh, expansion. Uh, but the other thing too is many of us uh, do have heritage in that direction, therefore. You know, the people from Australia, uh, you can work and live and pay tax in the United Kingdom up to the age of 28 without having to have any kind of visa. I think they've brought it down to 26 now. So, like, you can go there on what's called, like, a working holiday. Right. And you just, like, a, yeah, I think they're tightening it up now. But, you know, it used to be a going on thing. Also, you know, it is 12,000 miles from uh, Melbourne to London. But um, it's it uh, because Australia is so far from everywhere else. It, it's almost like a rite of passage. You finish high school, <laughs> and before you go to university, a whole lot of people take what they call a gap year, and they go to Europe, man, because it's like, well, 
you got to go somewhere. It's a long way. You might as well go there. Yeah, you'll and see some different stuff, meet some different people, maybe get to know some different yeah, exactly. people. And also, very well. for us, the music scene was really, you know, seemed to be going on there. And and the whole indie record thing, you know, like uh, small labels was huge in England at that point in time. Rough Trade, uh, Biggest Bank with 4AD, uh, Cherry Red, uh, uh, Factory up in uh, in Manchester. It was just going off. You know, it, there was everyone was starting a little label somewhere and they were able to get distribution uh, and and sell records and chart actually even chart on the mainstream charts you could get yeah you could you could get some uh, some people to actually play it which is it kind of crazy to think about now because we're talking about not just you know the, the the idea of like the indie station wasn't necessarily even around at that point that we we're talking about folks that would just commercial stations that are taking a chance on playing something kind of weird you know playing something well, it, it, a lot of, a lot of that did come there was you know there was the guru uh, at the BBC which was of course John Peel and John Peel basically um, you know uh, everybody listened to his show he was like the tastemaker kind of guy uh, and uh, we were very very fortunate that hooked on to us quite early in the piece. Uh, uh, you know, we did do a lot of um, uh, stuff. To, well, I spent a lot of try, time courting uh, John Peel, trying to bump into him, have a meeting with him, accidentally pop. Oh, you go him. to this bar too? Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, he's, he's quite a reclusive kind of dude, but uh, I got to know the guy who was the doorman at the uh, at the studios because I used to go there after work every uh, night when I knew Peel was going to be on the radio that night. To go there from when I could get from my job where I was selling jeans, uh, I could get from there to uh, – uh, you know, the uh, Portland place where the BBC offices and studios were. And I got myself there in time uh, to try and, you know, bump into him or his producer, John Waters, so that I could uh, hand over these records. And in the end, it did happen. Uh, and uh, he then played our records. Uh, we got a very small article uh, on us in the NME about us being there from Australia. But in that first... 10 months we were in the UK, uh, we played seven shows. And we were a band that was used to playing. A lot. You know, we were playing all the time. Yeah. yeah that's. Oh, yeah. We played, we, a hundred and some shows a year we were doing in Australia, you know. So it was, <laughs> it's a, and then just do seven. But then when we went back, and we went back to Australia uh, over the Christmas break. So it was going to be the worst of winter in the UK, but it was going to be summer in Australia. So we would go back to Australia, cut another album tour, play, you know, 30, 40 dates, uh, and then go back to the UK with a new release. Because by then we had a label in the UK. Um, we were big, we were being quite fated for our live performances. We're starting to get, you know, the, the couple of singles we put out got good reviews, which was uh, Mr. Clarinet and then uh, The Friend Catcher. And uh, they, yeah, and they were getting good reviews in, uh, you know, The Sounds and NME and, uh then we, uh, Ivor Watts Russell at 4AD said he would sign and release, you know, anything that Missing Link produced in, uh, uh, you know, so Keith did a sub-license deal uh, from Missing Link to 4AD in the UK and we were away, you know. So uh, then, yeah, over the next year and a half, things went, went, you know, stellar for the band. You know, we went to Europe, we did our first trip to the United States, 
you know, and that was that, but that was more after. Uh, that's more around the kind of prayers on fire time. Yeah, yeah, and and you're and you're just you're you're hitting so much awesome stuff, and I want to make sure we we get to it all. Uh, specifically, yeah. I, I I I want to talk about how. Okay, so think back to to Mr. Clarinet specifically. Like it, yeah. it, it almost to me, it almost seems like. Like the drums especially give it a, like a, like a funky feel, for for lack of a better term, and that's something that uh, you know obviously the Gang of Four was was uh, you know you you mentioned them, and uh, the pop group to a lesser extent, but it's it's interesting to me that w- when you're talking about writing drums to these parts and coming from you know more or less a rock and roll background, what were your what was your thought process with coming up with stuff when when these guys are coming up uh, with their their parts and you're like hmm. Around that, around that era. Okay, so there's there's two very distinct, different ways that songs came about in the birthday party, and it would usually depend upon who had written the song. Uh, if it, Roland usually had a very, very structured idea in his head, he would go to Tracy, "Here's your bass part," and show it mm. to Tracy, on his, and then Tracy go like this. He go, "Yes, I'm playing this, Mick. I think you should play this one." And Phil, the drumming should go like this. He'd either reference another song, or he'd say it should swing, or I want a lot ride symbol in here or you know like and it was very um dictated with nick's songs it was a much more organic kind of process and everybody brought their thing to the thing but often it was um you know someone had a part um um, something like Mr. Clarinet is a really weird one because uh, it kind of (coughs) came from the drums up uh so this idea really kind of um uh, almost monotonous kind of uh, beat uh, and then uh, the keyboard part was something that Mick had um, but then uh, the all the guitar parts and everything Roland just came, you know it, it, it's one of those kind of, kind of songs that oh and then we could go to here and it, it sort of came apart Mick had the basic structure of the chording and the yeah yeah that, like, that, that kind of almost uh <laughs> Circusy sounding part or yeah, something. Correct, right? correct. Uh, but the funniest thing about that thing is the the killer sound for that on me is uh, for me is that the the actual snare drum on the whole song is overdubbed uh, with uh, Nick and I using these kind of short pieces of like broom handle type stuff, uh, whacking these uh, metal trash cans. Uh, oh so yeah, they, yeah, they get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That. Sure, sure, yeah. And then that's mixed up under the drums. But the most amazing thing about that song that not many people know is that Tracy was AWOL uh, for that session. And uh, for one reason or another, we got in there and we tracked this track and we got it right up to the point where we were going, it sounds amazing. You know, like it's just great like this It's because it's all bottom in from the organ and everything like that. Yeah. It just goes this and then tracy turns up because like you know uh i don't know uh, you know car trouble whatever you know it got stuck at the pub i don't know but anyway <laughs> and, and so we're playing this track going oh we're, we're gonna mix it like this and tracy goes oh hang on a sec and uh you know plugs his bass in goes in uh stands in the control room with uh, tony the engineer they run the tape twice while he noodles around with it and then he goes okay record and he put the bass <laughs> place 
on top of everything that was there, he put the bass part down in one, and that was it. And the best so part, everything, yeah, everything else is already there. Already there, and yet the the best part of the whole of that song is he's playing all these little sort of like tiny little bloop, bloop, bloop sort of noises, almost like some sub little bits of like something off a dub record or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But there were, when it goes to the guitar workout to the da na 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 he walks yeah. and it makes song. It makes it sound like some something out of a European movie or something totally. like that. Totally, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, all the rest of it was there. Uh, it sounded great. We all thought it was cooked, you know, and yeah. then the – Tracy came in and it made such a difference to the whole thing, what he did right then and there. So that's part of the genius of the great late Tracy Pugh. Yeah. yeah. Rest, 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 rest in peace, Tracy. So, I mean, what – and that's a good point because he's he's such kind of a, a, a large looming figure in this mm. world of rock. Seems like a very fascinating character. Like, What, what would you say are like the best and worst parts of, uh, of playing with being part of the rhythm section? The rhythm section is very important to a band. Yeah, he and I had an incredible understanding. I've never played with another bass player since uh, that I felt so locked in with. Uh, but we developed stuff over years of um, uh, woodshedding stuff together, even to the uh, – Tracy developed a thing once where we were in a rehearsal uh, room, but he couldn't stand in a particular place uh, because of the confines of the oh, sure. rehearsal. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we, we, he put a mirror to the side of my drum kit so he could see my feet. <laughs> so, he, so, so he could at least see what you were doing? If so he could, he could <laughs> see what the bass drum was doing. Uh, and we, we, uh, we were schooled really early on in like studio time was incredibly expensive uh, when, when we were first in the business. And every hour in the studio, the meter was running like the most expensive taxi cab you could ever get in. <laughs> and, and so... You know, we would we would do things like we would go into the, a rehearsal space prior to recording, and we would re- have this song. We knew how it all went, but we would take off. We say, okay, Nick, don't sing. Roland, don't play. Mick, don't play any of your note parts. Only play the rhythm parts that go with me and Tracy. And then we would learn the whole song like that, so that everybody knew what their how their part spoke to the other person's part and then i you know tracy would go what are you doing on the kick there what you know we should change it to this that's tighter like that and so he and i worked on a lot of that stuff just that became our way of operating all all the time prior to recording and it just saved you so much because you would go into the studio uh you know ready to smash it and then you weren't kind of like hesitant about the song you were trying to get the killer take the killer take where the where the rhythm section was really glued together really really well and so that you know he was an incredible player uh he's very tasteful uh, 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 very strong. Uh, uh, used to go for really great tone on his bass. Loads of top, loads of bottom. Sucked pretty much all the mid range out of it. Um, to later in his life, he he got a real things for Ampeg SVTs. They were his preferred amp. But prior to that, he would um, he yeah he um, he he really knew how to get a sound out of an amp uh, and. Uh, 
yeah, he was great to work at the end. The, the bad things of Tracy, uh, you know, God rest his soul. I mean, you know, when I first moved out of home and got my first apartment, it was with Tracy, you know. Oh, wow. Uh, and I, <laughs> nice. We, we, you know, we drank a lot of beer and, you know, smoked a lot of jazz cigarettes and played a lot of records together, you know, as kids. And sure, as, we as went one out, does, yeah. Yeah, we went out to clubs together and we, you know, picked up women together and did all that kind of stuff. And so he and I had, you know, this, I have a really beautiful note that he wrote me when I, uh, inverted commas, left the birthday party. And uh, he was, you know, he was, you know, he was always very caring and, uh, and uh, very, uh, uh, you know, warm towards me as a person. So I've got I have a really great friendship with the guy. Um, he could be erratic. Uh, he could really go off the rails on the drink. Uh, he wasn't much of a drug user uh, during the time I, uh, you know, spent a lot of time on the road with him. Tracy, a little bit of speed, couldn't really care, didn't really like dope that much, but he could drink and he could drink an awful lot. Uh, and uh, sometimes he performed like you wouldn't even know he'd had a drink and other nights he'd be, he'd be sloppy. So uh, that that was probably his, um, you know, his, you know, minor you know, foible, weakness, whatever. But uh, uh, as far as, uh, you know, he, he's always happy to pick up his amp and shove it in the back of the van. He wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't sort of, you know, playing too much rock star. He was, uh, right. yeah, he was a really decent guy, decent guy, but, yeah, a phenomenal player. And his parts uh, in some of the songs are, are just... And even though they may have been parts given him, like, you know, I mean, Nick wrote the bass line for King Inc. and for Nick the Stripper on a guitar and said, like this. But when Tracy Pugh picks up the bass and plays it like that, and you go, that's a whole other thing. Well, you know? it, it's, it's a type of authority that, you know, was very inspirational for folks, too, and inspired many other very iconic players to kind of be like, oh, that's that's what I, I wanted to sound like that. That's, you know, this very just exactly brutal, exactly. just mean, just nasty. I mean, like the, to the fact that I, I remember once, uh, playing, playing the birthday party, uh, for, uh, and I think it was something like King Inc. And, and, and I was like showing like what the band looked like. I showed a picture of Tracy Pugh and like, that's a bass player, right? <laughs> by looking at him, I'm like, yeah, good. It's like, yeah, I could tell by the mustache. <laughs> uh, he, did. he developed that. He developed that look. He didn't have that, 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 that. The mustache never arrived until we got to the UK. And at first, it was kind of like almost like a really, you're yeah, really good. Errol Flynn, you know, what are you what are going yeah, on here? Like, yeah, what's well? And then he started dying, and so I looked a lot better. But then. That time when we first went to New York and he bought that massive Stetson hat uh, and then, you know, came out with the, the mesh vest and the, you know, almost kind of village people kind yeah, of yeah. vibe. And, Shit, you know, this is really a thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, he, he owned that stuff, man. Like it was uh, – it was uh, – it was really his jam. He he walk around the street like that, no stress. You know that was that was his thing. You know. Well, it's interesting that he sort of managed to carve out a, a lane for himself that was somehow managed to be both arty and hyper masculine and just plain bizarre at the same time. And uh, yeah, well, I think I think it was a lot of that, and I think that was that was kind of what the the band. The band was uh, was fairly enigmatic in uh, in the, the musical choice. Uh, you know, it's a very unusual. Uh, uh, people might look at it as a very unusual combination of people, but it, it worked uh, incredibly well. 
for that period of time, whether it could have kept going. I don't think we could have been the Rolling Stones and be doing stadiums now, uh, but it's like uh, at, that, at that point in time, before things got and the things did start to really like you know get frayed around the edges towards the end and before it all disintegrated, but in that period around uh, the bit finishing off in Australia, those that that sort of series of recordings there. Uh, First year in England, making prayers on fire. Second year in England, uh, all the touring and stuff, making junkyard. Then that, I mean, yeah. that was some of the uh, really amazing times in my life. But also creatively in the studio and compiling those songs and working with those people, it was it was just it was a dream, man. It was just it was fantastic. Well, and and there's and there's a lot there, and I want to talk a little bit also. Uh, you spoke to Nick the stripper. Like, where did the idea to like throw the horns on in there? Because in a way, it could it could have gone very wrong, but in a way, it almost makes the song that it's like, wait, what? There's a demonic horn section here. What? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what, what happened there? Basically, uh, that part that they're playing is roll when we play live was Roland's guitar part. So the da 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 da. Yeah. So that uh, and uh, there was. There was a bit of saxophone around at that point in time. Nick was playing sax live at that point in time. Uh, and basically uh, songs like Yard and stuff, we were doing that live and Nick was playing the alto sax on that. We, um, uh, I, Roland could also um, play saxophone to uh, you know some degree as well. Uh, and I... Th- I don't know. I, I couldn't say it just seemed like uh, a really, I think I'll tell you where it may have come from a little bit. It may have come a little bit from uh, the laughing clowns um, having horns and a horn section. Uh, there was, uh, I'm trying to think, I mean, you know, there's, there's horns and stuff on a bit of beef heart. There's horns on. Yeah, it, there is precedent for it, but it, it's certainly not a. Certainly, at the time, was not a generic go. We never did it live. We never did it live, but we yeah. also we never we never conflated the, the two. We never thought that our live recordings had to sound exactly like our studio recordings, uh, and and vice versa. So, <clears throat> yeah, uh, and the same year we had Zoo Music Girl on that um, on that album and that. Uh, which you know I thought was uh, a fun thing for me to do as a drummer and uh, Tracy never had any problem with it but man the audience used to have a terrible fucking time with it it, is, you know, they, they, it was uh, obviously people were going what's going on but yeah. I, I love it when people can't uh, I like things that are in unusual time signatures but people don't actually notice that there's a different you know like you know, right. money. they're just going to be rocking out rather than uh, yeah, yeah so you know money by pink floyd that's in five there's um <clears throat> even you know say a little prayer uh, by you know aretha franklin you know parts of that are in five four and uh, uh what else oh, i mean uh, you know what uh, that uh outcast song uh Hey Yah! Or oh, hey Yah! Which sounds like the most straightforward song ever, and it's, yeah, yeah. if you stop oh, and think about it, it's like oh, yeah, it's, it's like ten twelve or something. You go, Great, but no one cares. They just go on for it, you know. Yeah, so yeah. it's nice to bring things like that in, into it, and it also it showed um, 
that, you know, everyone could play. And that's one really thing uh, about, you know, I remember when we first arrived in England and we all these bands that we admired that we um, we thought, well, this would be cool. We'd get to see these guys live. And the second night we landed in London, a girl we knew who was living there, she said, oh, I've got you guys on the door to go to the marquee in Wardour Street, the Cura playing. So I go, okay, this would be cool. And this was like, yeah, three imaginary boys time. They only got their oh, first yeah, album. Yeah, that, they were a pretty brutal, uh, uh, pretty pretty awesome, raucous band at that point. Like it was yeah, before, yeah, before so the we, more uh, introspective stuff, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. No, no chorus on any of this. Uh, but they basically, when we went to see the Cure, and they were incredible, and they played almost no perfect to their record. And we sort of walked out of that gig going, holy shit, man, if every band in London that we've got the records of can play that good, we're in real trouble here, you know. But what happened was, you know, two days later we went and saw, you know, uh, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen, Simple Minds and Teardrop Explodes at the Lyceum and they were yeah. all dreadful. They were shocking. <laughs> they were live, you know. <laughs> No problem. We've got this one under control now, you know. Well, well, and then you know, yeah, and you guys are you know coming out, coming out like a like Mars attacks or something along those lines. Yeah, like you're coming at it from with this just intensity that, uh, yeah, it seemed like not all the bands had. Even if some of them made some swell records, they weren't necessarily all coming at it from that uh, live performance. And, and that's mm-hmm. there was that performance. Uh, I think it was at the Hacienda in Manchester. It ended up on the uh, Pleasure Heads yeah, Must yeah, Burn. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's yep. it's intense. It's brooding. I think Nick kicks someone in the he- in the head at some point, if I, if I remember correctly. Like it's it looks like fraught uh, with danger, but a very good time. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, 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 the, the things escalated. Um, well, in the first year we were there, it was you know people stood and looked at us kind of thing, and then I think what we were so used to people not standing and looking in Australia, we were you know like people just didn't in England people literally in the middle of the room their arms folded and looked at you and you went what there's a band playing for God's sake yeah right <laughs> so you know they're all too cool for school and we basically Nick just started going well how do I get these people going so he just you know I don't know if he you know checked the Iggy Pop playbook or what he did <laughs> he said oh I see if I go out there and stand on them or hit them in the head with the microphone things will start to happen and uh, <laughs> you're gonna get a reaction one way or the other for, for damn sure towards the, towards the end of the the touring period post junkyard uh especially well in australia the live shows got frighteningly uh, scary up front and i was uh, we had a roadie quit the tour because he was uh he was doing like front of stage like feeding the mic cables out to nick and all this sure. kind of stuff yeah, yeah. like you know writhing around you know surfing the audience and shit like that doing and <laughs> And the roadie quit because he said someone's gonna get hurt and I'm gonna be right there when someone gets hurt like really badly. Yeah. And it got it got fierce and in um in Germany and Holland it got it got a couple of times it got yeah, really out of control. And like yeah, uh some like we played this gig in Cologne and the posters said uh, uh the hardest band, meaning like the toughest band right, from right. England. Yeah, yeah. And so, <laughs> it means something these- else sometimes in America, but at this point they would yeah, be talking yeah. about so how tough you were. Germany, yeah. What it meant was we were the, we were the not like we were like the fightingest guys from yeah. England. And so all these bloody like, you know, 
skinhead type guys turned up looking at us like, oh yeah, and some guy, we, by then we actually even had security. We had a guy who traveled with us who was to try and keep Nick safe or to stop people hurting right. us. You know, and this, a guy came through the audience with an iron bar in his hand heading for the stage. And then, so this guy had to block him and get rid of the iron bar and then get him out of the venue before anyone comes and... Yeah. Anyway, no, nobody showing up at, at your show with an iron bar can be up to any good of any kind. Yeah. No, well, not yet. Yeah. That, so funnily enough, I don't get that at shows anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I don't think Nick gets it at shows anymore. But man, he's doing some killer shows these days. He's really, you know, he's uh, <clears throat> the live band and the uh, you know, he's doing uh, O2 Arena and stuff in the UK these yeah. days, which is mad. You know, uh, sadly, I was speaking to him uh, just before all this stuff went down. I was supposed to be going to an opening of a exhibition in uh, Copenhagen that he's got something to do with. And uh, then, you know, I say, oh, I'll meet you there, blah, 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 we'll have dinner, la, la, la. And then he rang and sort of then we had to cancel all this stuff because of the whole coronavirus thing. But then, you know, I was, uh, he, you know, he had to cancel a goddamn world tour. Uh, yeah, uh, who knows what? exactly. The whole, it was the whole deal. Yeah. 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 So that was, yeah, he was, you know, he said, even this thing we're going, he said, oh, I'm going to have to split the next day because we're starting rehearsals in wherever because we're going to start playing shows in, you know, I forget Austria or something like that. And, you know, it was like, wow. And then nothing, just nothing. So I, God knows that that must have cost a lot, a lot of musicians uh, uh, and touring organizations big time because that takes months to get that shit together. And it, and it usually feeds into a whole lot of stuff, festivals around the world and God knows what else. Well, but, people uh, think yeah. about it in terms of the band itself, but there's a whole ecosystem involved. There's like the stage hands. Yeah, exactly. There's, you know, there's a bunch of people that like <clears throat> their livelihood depends on it, you know, flat out. Yeah. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, uh, it, it is a shame that Hacienda thing. It's really lucky that, you know, they had that uh, facility there that uh, whenever you played at that gig, they, they videoed it uh, because they kind of, I think they saw the future of that being, you know, another channel of distribution for stuff. And that was all money that was coming out of factory records and out of, you know, the whole, you know, uh, uh, Joy Division, New Order and all their money, et cetera. But, uh, you know, even later, I played there once with the psychedelic first, and same thing. They videoed the whole thing, and it was all you know broadcast onto the screens at the same time. So uh, that was really fortunate. So there's the second half of that, which is the four piece birthday party playing at the Brixton Academy. That's um, uh, that's pretty awesome too. You know. Yeah, and that's the um, that's the one too. That, well, there's one of them that's the uh, I guess it was in '81, right? It was at the the venue that the it ended up being on that. Drunk on the Pope's Blood uh, performance. Yeah, no, the, that was a no, bit I, later. I play, yeah, I play later. The, the, the one at the, the one at Brixton Academy is the one, which is the, the second part of the Pleasure Heads Must Burn video is uh, when it's uh, after I've left, no longer in the band. And, oh, sure. Uh, so that's Rick doing that, yeah. Yeah, they're playing stuff off uh, uh, the Bad CDP and stuff like that. So, um yeah, and that's that's pretty cool. So, but the uh, the, the thing, the point I was going to make is that there's so much footage these days. There's so many photos. Everyone's snapping away with their phones, and then you look back at that band, you know, archivally and stuff, and you're trying to find, you know, and you've got, you know, people had their little instamatic camera in the audience trying to take a photo of something in very low light, and so you know, besides the official things where someone was paid as a photographer to take. Um, your photo, there's very little kind of just incidental footage of, or, or, or stills of people hanging around being themselves. Whereas uh, nowadays, that, that stuff just is. 
is everywhere. Yeah, now, I mean, being in a band now, it's everybody's got you know the ability to be a mini Martin Scorsese or something just in their in their pocket. And uh, I mean, yeah. so so on that, do you feel that the, like the live documents like that Hacienda show in, in Manchester uh, and things like that? Do you feel like it was an accurate document of uh, of the band of its, yeah, of its time? Yeah. Sadly, there was there was a uh, a whole lot of footage shot uh, during the summer of eighty one eighty two that was hopefully going to be made into a live performance video. Uh, they they took a sound recording from a gig we did at the uh, Astor Theatre in Melbourne, and that was supposed to be married up to the visuals to make it kind of like a live ish kind of movie of the band. Uh, footage has disappeared never been seen again i saw the rush i saw the rushes of it and it was it was really fantastic um you know they shot on film uh there was a guy literally they had one of their cameras encased in foam uh so that this guy could actually still operate it but get on stage and actually kind of physically almost bump into nick and stuff like that but uh yeah I, look I, the hacienda show is kind of close to sort of what things it would be really nice if it was shot from in front instead of kind of from the side yeah but they did, yeah yeah it didn't have those angles uh, and uh it, I always find that the thing that suffers most in those situations is the audio. Uh, there's usually a lot of unfortunate compression. Uh, and it's also that you never, you know, if you had have done that at the time knowing and it had it gone even to a track, you would have been able to get a much better kind of, you know, big time sound of what like the band live was like a, freaking freight train coming through your front yard you know it was right not not it was something the very very intense and i mean even to this day there's there's bands that you know what what they do live it's very difficult to capture in, in a video format because you just you're not going to get the the sense of scale uh, of what's happening yeah. especially and certainly not with your more ferocious bands as well uh, i mean it's nice mm. that there's something at all i mean there's certainly bands of that era that, that there's you know isn't anything of 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 that sort of any kind, but yeah, it, it definitely got the, the dangerous part across. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And yeah. And that was, there's definitely, and the other thing too, is I think it, get, it gets across, um, you know, they were, they were small ish, sweaty venues. Uh, you know, the biggest venue we probably ever played was, you know, uh, Brixton town hall or the venue in London. You know, this is like a you know, maximum be 1500, 2000 capacity kind of thing. The birthday party never probably played to anything much bigger than, you know, six to 800 people mostly. Uh, and, uh, you can usually see everybody, you, know, you probably sweat off, you know, 10 pounds every night. Just, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a good workout. <laughs> yeah, just, just being just, just from the lights, the heat, the closeness of the crowd and those songs, man, some of that, you know, you pay 45 minutes to an hour of that stuff. It's, that's quite a workout for, you know, whether you're the drummer, the singer or the guitar player, you know, it's all, it's full on. Sure. I mean, uh, and, and I guess, I guess walking it back a little bit to the prayers on fire record. I mean, did you, you, you mentioned uh, King Inc, uh, did you feel that that was sort of like a statement of intent song at the time, or is that something that just kind of seemed like, oh, there's another one, I do this on it? Yeah, I think, I, I, you know, I think we were, 
I don't know. I, th- I, I think a lot of Nick's um, songwriting and imagery and everything like that was really going into some interesting places. The idea of invoking the idea of a character such as King Ink or Nick the Stripper or indeed Zoo Music Girl or whatever like that, it does harken back to the idea of, uh, you know, certain records we used to listen to when we were younger where someone would create a mystical character, you know, uh, you know, sensational Alex Harvey band had, you know, Vambo and there was like, you know, there was... Um, uh, you know, other people, you Excellent know, like reference. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> or, or Bowie would Bowie would sing about the Bewley brothers or something like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, you know. So, um, uh, and I suppose it gave him something to gather uh, lyrics around. And then, you know, there. I suppose there is the, you know, the uh, the ink and the nick is easily uh, just a jumble of the, uh, the, the the letters anyway. So, uh, you know, is it really about himself, you know, uh, same with Big Jesus Trash Can and things like that. Um, they, uh, I don't know. I, 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 the point I was going to make earlier about the change in the music and the oh, change sure. yeah, in yeah. direction. Sorry, I didn't mean to take you uh, off base with that. But. Right, right back. Because I think the birthday party really became the birthday party before we changed our name. And I think it was around that kind of hee-haw kind of time and the singles after that where we were really trying to push things and everything. And that was all post the death of Nick's dad. Now, Nick's dad died uh, just, uh, and I was, somebody was referencing, they were, someone was writing a bio and Nick was talking to me one day and they go, oh yeah, but Nick's dad died on this date. And then I was comparing it to the timeline of our recording dates. I'm going, hang on, we're in the studio doing shivers and those other tracks and stuff for the second side of the album. That's like, Within days of his father dying. Oh, wow. Okay. So did did you guy, did you even were you even guy, aware at the time or? Well we, well, we knew. I knew his father had died and everything like that. And I knew we were a band and everything. But the crazy thing, we were young guys. We're twenty, you know, uh, and we're just going uh, or twenty one, and we're just going. Oh yeah. Just keep going, and uh, and yet now you'd go, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd reach out to that person, going, "How are you feeling? You know, like are you are. Right. <laughs> How are you holding yeah, up? You know, I mean, <laughs> that's right. yeah, well, you know, are you upset about that? You know, did you hate your dad? Did you like your dad? What you know, nothing. You know, we we just went, oh well, business as usual. Keep going, and I, I, you know, when I look back at it now, I think, wow, that would have been such a heavy blow, and yeah, you yeah. know. How does, how does that all go in your your psyche and your mind and and what you know I mean you know, Nick was always incredibly well read he was always looking for you know stuff that was gonna you know fuel you know uh, the, the creative process so you know uh, you know uh, even around the kind of the time where he was uh, writing things that would end up on Junkyard, he was closely listening to Elvis, you know, kind of thing. So right. like, you know, but yeah. there's, no, there's no real correlation between, you know, Love Me Tender and, you know, stuff that we're doing, but hey, there, there, is this, can, yeah. <laughs> there is the idea of the, there is the, the idea of the, you know, the firstborn is dead and the, all that kind of stuff, right. you know, that come from digging into the, the, uh, the trove of, uh, treasure trove that is Elvis, you know. But, uh, yeah, um, yeah. I think we, yeah, King Ink and, and and things like that. I, I, 
I, I think we were trying to make every song be a different song. But I think that, I think by the time you get the prayers on fire, it's kind of like, you know, for the Beatle people who can go, oh, well, that's even though it says Lennon and McCartney, you go, that's a Paul song, that's a John song. <laughs> well, birthday party, it started to become, that's a Nick, Nick song. song. That's a Roland song. <laughs> Rolling song, right? And then often, you know, so so Mick, you know, Rolling songs were always Rolling songs, or they might have been Rolling and Nick together, kinda. But usually it was Rolling song, or it might be Nick on his own, or it might be Mick and Nick because mostly Mick didn't really write lyrics. Mick's a music guy, and yeah. Mick would more likely. Mick would also be due um, more credits than what he probably got uh, due to his uh, involvement in uh, arranging and structure of stuff. Uh, Often that was a process that happened uh, in the rehearsal room that we would just amongst all of us not have, oh, the change should go there, that no one will exceed fucking coming, you know, let's go, we'll do that, uh, we'll try it, you know, oh no, that falls on its face, how do we get back from there to where we were and things like that. Sure. And uh, so Mick Harvey's a very, um, although, you know, pretty much completely self-taught except for, you know, a few guitar lessons, uh, he's uh, definitely got the kind of uh, uh, mathematical uh, format of how music works uh, really just happens in mixed brain pretty automatically. So he's uh, very good at, you know, well, if you play that against this, it'll sound fucking awesome and uh, mostly he'll be right. So, uh, yeah, that that's kind of the process we were going through, but mostly we would jam things out like the, 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 uh, like, you what know, about like, like the friend catcher, for instance, like how do you arrange a uh, song like that? <laughs> Okay, well, Frank Catcher is interesting. And Frank Catcher originally was twice the speed and was all played on Tom Toms uh, and was much more like one of my usual jungle kind of workouts. Uh, and then we went, no, it's just kind of, it's too fast for the lyrical content. It's not, it, it hasn't got the right level of kind of sleaze. So we basically <laughs> put some sleaze on it. <laughs> we just slowed it and slowed it and slowed it and slowed it until we could get the kind of right lope and groove to it. But the other funny thing, and this is where Tony Cohen also comes into it. If you listen to that song, there's a double snare beat. So it goes like that. Yeah. Now on the recording uh that's actually a delay i didn't play it later on i just said oh well i'll play that and said so live i started to play it but the original way that double snare came about was that tony put a delay on the single delay on the stairs and the funniest thing is if you listen to that song there's a bit where it breaks down and it comes back in with uh eighth notes of the ride symbol on the stair yeah. but if you it sounds like a really out of kilter roll because the delay is still there on the snare drum. And so it sounds like it's going chugga, 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 but actually it's just going like that. So <laughs> the delay makes it. So then later on, of course, I had to go to play it live. I had to go, <laughs> listen okay. back to it and learn it that way. I had to play and I used to, to do it. I'd have to play trad grip because otherwise I couldn't get the, the two notes out as hard uh, holding any script. So it was like, yeah, anyway, but that's 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 the, that's the thing. The studio became the instrument, not the – and that added to that song. Uh, yeah, there's, there's – uh, mostly we arranged 
And people would always go, how in the hell do you know where you're up to in a song live, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> right. And usually the arrangements were either, um, they were either triggered by a part. So we might be in one particular groove or part of Nick the Stripper or King Inc. or whatever, uh, or something that seems like it's just this endless rolling groove and then there's a change. How did you know to change? Or how do you go completely out of time with Tracy and then come back in time with him? And it's because because he could read me and I could read him. We just did it with our eyes and with nods. But the rest of were often vocal cues. When Nick did that scream or when Nick started to sing again, you had a half a bar, but you knew you had to change. And so that if whenever he would start, then you could change. And Or Roland would have a guitar figure or Mick, a figure that we're on the scene, but when they go, you know, you know, whatever, the change, that's the thing. But that means there was live, there was no set length. If Nick's right. lost, so the songs could like expand or contract based upon what oh. was happening, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And and live, that was invaluable because sometimes Nick might be halfway up on top of the PA stack or he might be <laughs> out in the middle, you know, or he right. might be unfortunately standing on top of my bass drum, which used to really annoy the hell out of me. <laughs> looks amazing. Yeah, it looks awesome, uh, but it's not very good for the drum, that's for sure. Well, he never, you know what? I think I must have just been a real bit of a worry water or a bit of a Nancy boy, because you know what? You stand on a drum, it's not going to break. But I just, you know, you just think, man, if that just crushes down like that, it's going to be ugly, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but no, but yeah, it, when you ever see a photo and Nick is actually standing on the bass drum, like with one arm up in the air, like this, screaming into the yeah. microphone, yeah. It looks fantastic, it. yeah. <laughs> I don't care if the bass drum breaks, man. Well, we got that photo, you know. As long as, as long as the camera got the got the shot, then you're sorted. That's, that's the one. And, uh yeah, I mean, like, you know, I'll never forget the first time we uh, we got to the States and we arrived in uh, New York City and uh, we were, you know, we got picked up by the uh, from the airport by someone in a van and we got taken to our divey hotel and then we went to the promoter's house and, you know, it was like, wow. But then, you know, the first, uh, oh, the first or second show that we played there, they shut us down after three songs because they booked us into some, like, crazy, you know, slick you know, nightclub type place, and the owners—they weren't having any any of the uh, malarkey, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then, then you know, and then we we're we're doing that, and then then of course the word spreads like wildfire. By the time we get to this, we're playing, uh, we're opening for the au pairs at the Ritz, which is quite a big room, and. Uh, we get there once again with three songs in and management come out and pull the plug. This is very good for your, um, you know, your credentials in rock and roll. <laughs> it makes you dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Oh, they, right. they wouldn't even let them play. Yeah. <laughs> no, so straight up. Then, then the people on the phone from Washington, we want them at the 930 club. Get them in here. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> New York can't take it. We want it. Get them up to Chicago. You know, so it was, it was sort of extended as a result of the hype. You know, it was, a, it was only even, it was a dozen shows or something. But it was, um, you know, they went back uh, after I was no longer in the band. They played the West Coast, and I think that was, uh, I think that was instrumental for a lot of people. I always find it interesting that you know, like like Henry Rollins goes, "Oh, I saw the birthday party, and it fucking blew my mind and stuff." And uh, I, I know that uh, I've seen people send me these things. Go, you know, here's a list of uh, Kurt Cobain's favorite twenty albums right, or yeah. something like, yeah, you know, and junkyards in there or something like that. And you go, "Wow, that's that's crazy." I would never think that people were listening to that stuff then you know well well and and so that's something 
I was I did want to rank up with you, and I was going to wait a little bit till a little later to bring it up, but it's as good a time as any, I suppose. Is that the um, I mean, the influence of that band and those records was pretty far ranging, and that holds true for bands that you know sound nothing like what the Birthday Party sounded like uh, necessarily, mm-hmm. but they took the influence of what you guys did and how you did it and put it through their own meat grinder and made their own thing with it. But then there's also bands that you know. It's not super common, don't get me wrong. It's not like Green Day or something, but like I'll hear bands that it's very clear like, oh, you guys like the birthday party, huh? They're like, yeah, fuck oh, yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've heard records on the radio, you know, like uh, there's an independent station here in Melbourne called 3 Triple R that I have on pretty much nonstop. Yeah. And then something, something will come on and I go, oh, well, they listen to the birthday party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's funny, you know, I, I do recall, I wish I could find where it was written down, but I remember doing a magazine interview in either Europe or the UK at something where I was in the interview situation with Nick and answering some questions as well. And someone asked me, you know, well, what do you, and I, I said, I said, I think we're kind of in this situation where we're really totally focused on what we're doing but that I think that we might end up being something like like the Velvet Underground or like, you know, the Modern Lovers or something like that. Whereas, you know, 20 years later, um, the band will not be no more, but everyone Legend will, will come, live, yeah. yeah. They'll reference that record. Like, you know, everyone will reference, you know, uh, I wouldn't necessarily pick the Banana album, but, you know, they. I, there's some quote where it said, uh, you know, it only sold you know initially five thousand copies but every person who bought it formed a band yeah yeah right no totally in that in that same sort of way and i mean don't get me wrong like i when i first started listening to the birthday party i would just sit there and try to reverse engineer what roland was up to i'm like how is he what is it is that still a guitar like what's what is he doing Mm -hmm. how is he making that Mm -hmm. noise and especially without you know when you don't have like a youtube reference to immediately (laughs) Go to it and and analyze now. You know, like now. there's a guy, there's a there's a guy on YouTube. Somebody shared this with. There's a guy on YouTube who's um showing you how to play um some these immortal souls uh, songs really? and some okay yeah yeah this is and this is you know you can see and he's doing and then playing along with the record like, how to play like Roland Howard is fucking <laughs> crazy. But no one can play like Roland Howard except Roland Howard. But uh, it was and like yeah, Roland was um. He was another obviously interesting character in the makeup of the whole thing, and obviously the the you know the head bumping over creativity between him and Nick uh, towards the end was no doubt what f- was caused the final demise of the band called the Birthday. And then Nick pretty much was then Nick was on his way, and then that let, set Roland free to go off and you know play in Crime and City Solution and these Immortal Souls and do his solo stuff and play with Lydia and all that sort of junk, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, like Roland as a guitar player was uh, was certainly something to behold. He was very experimental in the studio. I reckon if uh, you know he had have had the access to the toys that the kids have to play with these days for so little money, uh, you know, you can buy pedals for twenty bucks now. Back then, you know, a half decent pedal cost you at least a hundred, and you know, and you know, a good guitar costs three hundred. So you're, you're basically saying, you know, where a good guitar now costs a, a couple of grand or three grand. So you say a pedal's worth relatively a thousand dollars back then uh, for you to add something to your arsenal. He was very, you know, and uh, the little known fact is that Roland's two main foot switches 
features the uh, uh, MXR Blue Box and the Distortion Plus, which he's famous for using in concert to get that sound with his Fender Twin. Uh, both those pedals were stolen for him by our road crew. He <laughs> didn't actually... He didn't have the money himself to actually ever. They were liberated from their bonds. <laughs> they were. They went to. They, they ended up in a far better place, though. You know. Yeah, I was gonna say they they went they went on to be the stuff of a, a legend. Legend, you know, so indeed. Not so bad. But no, he was he was he was uh, yeah he was great at, at uh, pulling incredible uh, takes and, and sounds out of things in the studio, and he was always you know, trying to really and live he was he, he was incredible as well. But there was always going to be this thing of. Uh, you know who's the who's the leader of the gang you know kind of thing and uh, to my mind you know when I was in the band and as a member of that band uh, to me I'm quite down with the kind of Jagger Richards idea but you have one singer you know Keith might occasionally get to sing you know you got the silver or something but that's it you know he's not the front man you know and uh that's that's how I always saw it but I don't think that Roland saw it you know uh, that way, we did have a couple of songs songs early on uh, when Roland first joined the band, where Nick would play keys uh, or would play Roland's guitar, somewhat you know fakery, uh, while while Roland sang a song. Uh, but then it all really just switched around to like it's better to, for the presentation of the band for you know, Nick to be the singer. Yeah, I mean, do you, do you feel that because it's very clear that Roland. You know, knew what he wanted, and and very much wanted to be, uh, you know, a front person of his own style and, and type, which is very different from Nick, especially at the time. But by the same token, you know, it's also, you know, you you, you look at the roles of the band, and you know, Nick is, this, is such a compelling personality, and and can not only do the show, but can deliver the songs with an intensity that. You know, not a lot of other bands could do. And by the same token, Roland is, you know, coming up with this this insane, like, crazy guitar parts that, you know, put set these songs that would also be good without that and just send them uh, off into, like, you know, the Neptune or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy. The, um, the, I think the soundscape thing was something we were all looking at. You know, there's a lot of stuff, for instance, that uh, people don't recognize. Okay, so the guitar solo in Nick the Stripper is not Roland, that's Mick. You know, so well, and, and, and as you mentioned, yeah, it's credit where credit's due. I, I, I'm a big Mick fan, and I want to make, sh- make sure that that is acknowledged that Mick <laughs> is the unsung hero of, of many things musically. Uh, yeah. and, and I don't want to give credit people, everything to Roland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just, I think that we speak in hushed tones about those who have left us. The same with Tracy. I mean, Tracy left us. He was, you know, 29 or whatever, you know, it was yeah. just totally unexpected. Uh, you know, Rolly, sadly, uh, you know, his uh, various illnesses and stuff really got the better of him towards the end and his, his body just, you know, couldn't keep up. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, everyone in the band certainly had their part. You know, Roland was more obviously, you know, your frontline, you know, guitar hero type of the, 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 the birthday parties version of what that looked like. Yeah, the unlikely know. guitar hero, which kind of made it cooler too. Yeah, I think the other thing too is that like um, – I know Roland was so incredibly prolific when he was a kid and in the early days of the band, but I think he struggled as time went on. Uh, and I think uh, he lost uh, a lot of his confidence along the way. And uh, I think uh, someone like Nick, I don't know, he's never going to lose confidence, Nick, because he's just, 
he's driven. And Nick is also the thing about Nick is he never stops working. And I think that uh, uh, I think Roland's battle with uh, narcotics and, and you know although Nick did that as well, but he got away from it or he was able to still be strong enough to fight through or whatever. I think, you know, Roly, sadly, uh, uh, you know, especially towards the end, he, he just couldn't pump out the material. Nick, and Nick's like a freaking machine. He never stops. And whether it's a, a book or a song or a movie soundtrack or what, you know, you know, Nick pretty much gets up in the morning, puts on that yeah. suit that you always – and he goes to the office. He literally, he literally has, an has an office, and he goes and works. And I th- I find that so I find that so remarkable and compelling that because for me, I I, th- I think a lot of people like you know whether it's true or not this idea that okay songs and and creativity are divine inspiration. It's like well no, it's actually divine perspiration. <laughs> you, mm, you know? I think there's a lot. Look, I, I think that the the other one too is, you know, when you were, we were asking about like, you know, what did you think the legacy of the band would be and stuff like that? Well, I always kind of knew, you know, I always knew Nick was going to be a, a going on guy. There was no doubt about it right from school, yeah. right? Even in school, this guy, he's, I thought he would have been a painter. Like, like if you had seen his ability to draw and, and paint and do art, uh, like in the classical sense of like 2D art uh, as a sort of, you know, 16, 17, 18 year old. And even a lot of his crazy little sketches and drawings and the, you know, the cover art for Mr. Clarinet, which is like a Matisse cutout and yeah, stuff very, like that. Very he, just cool art, even devoid of the, from the music itself. It's just like really neat yeah, looking art. Yeah. So, indeed. So he could have done that in, in some other format, okay? but he was always uh, working, working, working. And, uh, but the, the, you know, the legacy was, was, I, I remember very early on, uh, Keith Glass, who owned Missing Link Records, I was talking, she goes, oh yeah, you were playing, we were supporting Keith's then band and his wife turned up and she saw us and she said to me, I can still recall the very first time I walked in, I saw the boys next door playing and I said, that guy has got it. So that guy, the, the guy singing, the it. <laughs> he's a singer in a band. You know, when you walk in, you go, "That guy's that." Look, he looks like what a singer in a band should be doing. Well, Nick was doing it, you know, kind of thing. And I think that's what happened. Is that like, like you know, so Nick's now twenty-five albums down the track, and Roland probably, you know, he had two solo EPs towards the end of his life. He was really, you know, he's yeah, he he struggled to to keep things are on the rails, you know, so that, that was, that was tough. And then meanwhile, you've got the hardest worker man in show business, you know, Mick Harvey, he never stops. And you know, a lot of, a lot of Nick's success at various stages is due to the fact that Mick was keeping Nick's raggedy old ass in line. You know, he was keeping, you know, things happening in the studio. He was keeping things together on the road. At one stage, I think he was actually even listed as Nick's manager, you know, so it's like, and, and, you know, you go through all that. But then, of course, you, you arrive at the point where there's a, some kind of musical impasse. And uh, Nick is not a person that uh, lets uh, any of that longevity stuff uh, get in the way of whatever's going to be next. So if you're not part of what's going to be next, you're just not part of it. And that's what happens to people along the way, whether it's me or Roland or it's eventually Mick and, you know, or, you know, I mean, Warren's filling the role at the moment, but, uh, you know. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen next? This is how it operates. And and so, did you ever feel with with Roland, you know, wanting to do his songs in the band, things along those lines, and then you know, Nick uh, do kind of letting letting that happen? That it was sort of like, oh, well, this this is good, but it's not quite, you know, it doesn't hit the same way necessarily. It's not well, that the songs me, yeah, aren't exactly. good, yeah. 
Exactly. It's not that the songs aren't good. They are different. They are much more uh, formulaic verse chorus type songs that he would bring, especially during the kind of prayers on fire stage. But what happened going through the prayers on fire into the junkyard stage and beyond, um, it was getting harder for Roland to get traction for a standalone song. If he'd written it with Nick, um, uh, it was going to go places better or it was seen as a collaboration. But one of Nick's more straight up kind of – you know, songs like, you know, Ho Ho or Capers or um, uh, even Cry or stuff like that. You know, it's like, um, yeah, they, they, they started not to seem as vital as the other songs, which were quirkier and, and weirder and, 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 and more uh, confronting and aggressive. I think even by the time they got to the, you know, the final um, album, uh, the two EPs, like the... Um, the Mutiny Backseed, yeah. The- yeah, yeah, yeah. So Six Strings of Drew Blood and Jennifer's Veil and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, but it's still not... It's not fucking hands up. Who wants to die? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Which is sort of we talk about your statement of intent songs. That kind of that kind of says it all right there, right? <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. I've been a, I've been part of a someone's working on another uh, film documentary on Roland, which is. Uh, uh, in, this one's a bit more. It's interesting. I don't know if you've seen the the existing one, uh, but I the, just saw a little bit of it, and I'm really fascinated because he's like one of my favorite guitar players, and it's. it's I feel like uh, there's so much story to tell, but I, I'm <clears throat> frustrated that I have not been able to see the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's really annoying because the autoluminescent one, which is made by a guy called uh, Richard Lowenstein, who he made uh, some movies and a lot of video clips around our time back then and stuff. Uh, but he, um, uh, it focuses on, a lot on the fact that it's definitely right near the end of Roland's life and the shots of him in hospital and stuff like this. It's really, you know, not heavy. Really, what? Yeah, not what I want to see, you know, kind of stuff. Um, and it was really, you know, came out after he died, and it was, well, you know. Um, anyway, um, uh, this this one is funny because it is actually the jumping off point that got the other thing started. This guy started shooting this doco, and then it kind of got hijacked by Lowenstein, who was able to get finance because he had the. And so it looked like it was going to be a much bigger thing. But the bad thing with this, the one that we're talking about, Auto Luminescent, it never got an international release. It only ever got released in Australia and it only ever got shown uh, on free-to-air TV here a couple of times. And that was it, right? So there's a lot of opportunity, but then everyone forgets about it and they stop working on it. That project's over. They're on to the next one. This cat who's making this other one, he tends to be trying to – it looks like he's going to focus a lot more on the music and uh, and uh, he's got a lot of interview footage with Roland before he died. Uh, and, and a few years before he died, I think during in the, the period between the making of the two EPs, because this guy who's making this doco was the engineer and owned the studio where those last oh, two okay, EPs. Oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Lindsay Ravina. So Lindsay's making this doco, and he's been in, in touch with me. And I've been seeing some uh, pretty interesting footage of like you know, Thurston Moore getting interviewed about the first time he saw Roland and sure. things like you know. It, it's really, really cool stuff when you talk about uh, the uh, the depth of, of the influence of the band and of his playing and stuff. Yeah, and not even <clears throat> just necessarily from a quantitative angle, but from a qualitative angle, too. Like you gave me the Velvet Underground analogy uh, before, which I, mm-hmm. I, I've actually used my myself, and it's one of those things where 
again being being in a in a band that uh, that tours and and makes records as well. There's it's always like you know you you could roll into like a town and be like, oh, these guys like the birthday party, awesome. So then like, I know I could talk to them about it afterwards because it's like they've got the hallmarks because they they've you know they've found these these records that have maintained their vitality just by nature of being intense weird rock records that like don't sound like anything else and you know the only real antecedent energy wise uh you know really was was the stooges and it's sort of like that only tells part of the story of of what that band did and it's so interesting to have so many different factors involved and so many different types of personalities and to have something that uh you know that kids discover literally every year is uh that's something special and that's something that's really kind of Amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is. It is. Uh, it's still also a bit of a. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm always doesn't make uh, you much money, but <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, and that's the other thing too. I I, I I always used to say, well, no one's making out. You know, I made more money out of the birthday party since they broke up than I ever did when I was in. Because you know I mean? every time they do a re-release on on something, you know, the albums are all, all owned by us now, and they're also they're all fully paid out. So like, no one's owed any money on them except whatever it costs to, to manufacture them. You know, it was great when everything came out on CD. Then everyone goes, oh, yeah, right. But then now everyone wants everything re-released on vinyl again. So all these limited edition heavy vinyl with the nice cover and the, you know, and the extra photos or they show, you know, chuck on a bonus track. I wish there was more bonus tracks. We just didn't record enough, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it would have been uh, uh, nice to have uh, uh, more outtakes and things like that of, of things that we dished. But, you know, tape just got reused. It wasn't it wasn't that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, when well, that was, that was how it was done. At the t- it wasn't, yeah. you know, it's like, why would you why would you keep this? You already made the record. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. You know, it's like, and the studio, the studio you would in would hold them for X and they say, Oh, and then they've got a band coming in on a demo deal. Well, you can reuse this two inch, you know, it's just, uh, these guys, they, <laughs> these guys just left this here. Losers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're starving him. Some noisy starving nonsense. Him. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I feel, I feel like any and people listening to this are probably screaming to, screaming at me about uh, not talking about junkyard yet because we, we've uh, alluded to it and we've talked briefly about it uh you know from what i know of that uh it was a pretty intense recording process you know you guys started usually around midnight kind of you know vampire mm-hmm. style like getting getting in on the time uh, 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 uh others right is that correct Look, there's, there's there's a few misconceptions about some of the, some of these kind of things. Uh, back some in the days, myth making or something. Or <laughs> well, some of it's true and some 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 of it's true and some of it's not. But like uh, for instance, uh, often what you would do, you know, back in these days, we're talking about studios of you know fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a day plus engineer plus tape. Uh, that's an awful lot of money. I mean, Junkyard basically bankrupted our manager and his record company, ruined his marriage, and lost his house for him. So that's that's quite a that's when you're finding a record because you really believe in the band. Well, he must have. <laughs> yeah, that's really, that's putting your money where your mouth is for sure. <laughs> absolutely, but uh, no. Well, often what you would do is that uh, you know, for instance, uh, I remember during junkyard sessions that uh, uh, Little River Band's equipment was in the main studio that we were working in. Like so. Uh, 
you know, they were theoretically there maybe during the day and we were there during the night, maybe, uh, but not always. You know, like I remember early on, we were in Studio 2 um, and in Studio 1, Split Ends were in there, but it was great because all of their percussion equipment was there, so I was able to go, oh, I'll do a bass overdub on this like a big big orchestra bass drum because yeah, it's yeah, there because yeah. you, you have it cool. available to you yeah sure that's absolutely. right I can't afford to rent it but he's not going to know I'm using it besides with Noel uh, the percussionist was a good guy and a mate but uh, yeah so there was a bit of that but yeah look we worked crazy hours um, but we worked when everybody was there and ready to go uh, sadly with Junkyard we <sighs> We had some of the songs, but not all of the songs. Two of the songs were recorded in England. We didn't finish the session. See, that album started to drag um, in in the in the manufacturing in the actual recording process. So we were we'd come back. We had X amount of songs, but not enough to fill the album. Uh, Hamlet written in the studio consequently that's why I don't play drums on it because basically they had this part uh, Nick was working out on the piano Tracy started playing on the bass I couldn't get anything to go with it that was really working uh, Mick said what about this uh, everyone said that fits and, they, and I said you know we all said do it you know like because because the clock is ticking yeah, on yeah because things. you're sitting there with the death clock going of, of you know <laughs> that's right, that's right. Uh, we also had a couple of interesting incidents is during that session, uh, you know, you're familiar with giant recording consoles with masses, you know, three or four rolling chairs and racks of gear either side. It was a beautiful studio, the best studio in Melbourne, Keith had rented for us. And uh, Tracy's there in full regalia, as previously described, uh, with brand new boots with spurs. And uh, he has a beer in his hand to side, put his boots up on the edge of the recording console, which is this lovely padded edge that you lean against. But oops, no, the spurs make a big hole in the padding on the desk. So there's an additional, you know, 500 bucks to reupholster the front of the bloody recording console because Tracy, please... He's brought you know. these spurs in on his boots. I had to have the spurs. Yeah. Complete the look. But I do, I do recall um, uh, we built a really kooky hybrid drum kit, uh, Tony and I, for that, where we taped a whole lot of drums together to make these really long toms. And uh, yeah, and uh, I think look, oh, junk, the actual song Junkyard and Big Jesus Trash Can, uh, Big Jesus Trash Can is one of the most dementous swinging things you'll ever hear in your life. It's just the. Uh, that, that 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 figure and those tom fills in between it's, yeah. it's just so you know it's it's uh, so there was, there was a lot of fun to do um I, I, yeah there was there was a fair bit of drugs around there was a fair bit of alcohol around um but mostly at the time we were paying these shows and the shows were really super out there uh, uh, in the audience confrontation uh, realm. And we were saying to do Stooges. Well, we'd always done some Stooges covers here and there, but, uh, you know, Loose was becoming a, a bit of a thing. And, uh, yeah, anyway, so, yeah, Nick was really going going the audiences and they were giving it back. And it was a very hot summer and uh, things went crazy. Tracy got arrested and put in jail. Um, so we had to go back to England without our bass player, which is why um, on uh, Kiss Me Black and Koopy Doll, uh, Barry Adamson is playing bass because yeah, Tracy yeah. 
jail. Um, and it's really weird because, like, when you're so used to playing with this one guy and you're so connected, and I even did some live shows with Barry, and I'm sort of going, you know, Barry's a phenomenal he's bass a player. player. But he's a different dude, and he plays, you know. I know, but I just couldn't. I go, are you sure you're actually playing King Ink there, Barry? Because it doesn't feel like I'm riding the same bicycle as last time, you know, kind of thing. It's, it was so different, you know. Yeah. And he just had a really, he used to slap and stuff, which was like, I don't like slapping. But, uh, you know, he never had Tracy's tone. But, you know, he's a great guy, great bass player. And Harry, uh, uh, Roland's younger brother, brother, played a couple of uh, shows, played played bass for a couple of shows while Tracy was in the can. But, uh, yeah, it was really unfortunate. You know, poor Tracy, you know, uh, Keith went to the court case to stand a surety for him, said, you know, like, uh, I'll, I'll pay his bail and, you know, please don't send him to jail. I've got, you know, the band's on its way. You know, they're waiting for him in England and blah, blah, blah. And they still sent him to jail. So, you know, it was, uh, it was a real bummer. But, you know, minor theft offence. But he, he racked up a lot of um, uh, driving uh, while drunk and driving while unlicensed and, uh uh, and then it may have also been a stolen vehicle as well. I can't remember. <laughs> no, 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 no. Sorry, Un- unregistered vehicle. Um, so the the, the, plane, the the registration, yeah, it was was uh, had expired as well. So uh, maybe it was just yeah. one of those things rather than the uh, the booyah. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. They just because he, he had a lot of priors and everything like that. They just thought it was. They sent him to a farm. It wasn't that hard, you know. It just you know fucked up the first couple of months in England, and then he was back, you know. But it was, uh, you know, not anything you want, you know, any of your friends to ever to have to go through to do some time, you know. Right. So, right. so, so then with with the sort of chaotic things that are going around with with the making of that record, uh, you know, it, it's still it's it's a it's an incredible document and, and frequently cited by lots of folks as, um, I mean, not just a paragon of the birthday party catalog, but just of the, of the genre in, in general. And when you think yeah, back loads to of it, people rate it, loads of people rate it. Uh, I, I would say that the, the better record for the change in the band and the arriving at a destination was probably prayers on fire. Maybe that's that's my personal favorite, just so we're clear, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe junkyard. We got it. Maybe we, we got a, a slightly more highly fueled up kind of version of, of what was going on. It really got to a level of uh, uh, intensity and stuff with that record. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I really, I really uh, dig it as a record. There's a, uh, I, I get confused because, of course, they, the release now has got released the Bats and Blast off also on the record, which, of course, were not on the record. Right. Uh, they, that was only only ever really technically a single in the UK. But then now if you put those on there, it's, yeah, it's more a document of that time, I guess. But originally those tracks weren't on there. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I, I like it. I always had a, uh, I had a, a kind of love hate relationship with the cover art. I was going to ask, how did you feel about that Ed Roth cover? Yeah, like. Oh yeah, well, well we all we all loved Ed, uh, and we all had grown up with those kind of hot rod t shirts. Were very popular in Australia. The whole kind of rat thing thing. Yeah. Nick during uh, during the kind of that tour uh, where we came back from. After we'd done Prayers on Fire and stuff, we came back to Australia to start recording Junkhead. During that tour, Nick started wearing his uh, I Hate Every Cop in This Town t-shirt, and he also had a Ratfink t-shirt that he used to wear as well. And Keith, see, Keith um, 
I had a record store called Missing Link, and it was like he used to bring in a lot of import records from the UK, but also from America, a lot of bootlegs, and also a lot of uh, you know T-shirts associated with bands and things like that. But he also there was someone in America was doing reissues of the the uh, the old Ed Roth T-shirts. He bought a bundle of those, and Nick really loved them and got it from him. Uh, and started wearing that T-shirt. Uh, and so Keith was very well connected with people in America, and he said, I reckon I could find Ed Roth. Yeah. And Keith was in America, went and found Ed Roth, uh, explained the name of the band and the, um, uh, the thing. And so what happened was Ed then did this pencil drawing. I wish I had the pencil drawing. But it was kind of pretty much – the crazy dude in the trash can drag car with Rat Fink and the machine gun and all. And it was like, and it was just that. And then he just written up the top, you know, in no particular text, uh, the birthday party and joke. And the only thing for me that ruins that album cover is the kind of squeezed out of the toothpaste kind of yeah. tubular rock word, the birthday party. It kind of goes. It makes you think it's something totally different than what it actually is. Which, which in the end is kind of cool, but it wasn't. <laughs> and the other thing too is we, we weren't expecting that level of coloration, but what happened was uh, Ed was working at a place called Knott's Berry Farm. Ah, uh, yes, and, he, yes. <laughs> and he was doing all of the, he wasn't doing that. He was like drawing, you know, cartoon characters for this kind of like nice family, you know, fun fair um, type joint based around jam. Is that right? Is it jelly that they make? Yeah. They, their predominant uh, thing that, that caused all of it to happen was around the jams and jellies. And then they, they later, adopted the Peanuts family of characters and attempt to make it uh, their version of Disneyland oh. uh, because they're located uh, very close to each other. So they, they bought oh, it. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So they had all the Schultz characters as well. Yeah, yeah anyway, so um, but the, we saw the pencil sketch and thought that was great. But uh, Ed had like a coloring in artist. So basically he'd draw everything like that and then he sort of like, but then he'd give it to another guy who did all the coloring and the airbrushing and stuff like that. So that's kind of what happened to, to that front cover. But then we get the actual cover art sent to us from America and we go, whoa, not quite what I was thinking, but we were, you know, no one was going, no, we're not using it. We were yeah, going, yeah, yeah we, yeah, I mean, it's still, so it was like the, the original, cause, and I do remember the original, um, uh, drawing i don't know if ed ross still had the original drawing because what keith bought back from america was basically he'd photocopied it all in sections and then he kind of like sticky taped it all together to go here's the drawing because it was too big to be copied. you couldn't take a photo with your phone then by the way right yeah you know? for the for the younger listeners and viewers yeah that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. so yeah so that that's how that came about and the cover was uh you know the back cover was was fine uh the in sleeve and the all the other information everything was totally cool uh i think the one thing that you should we i would also like to mention in the midst of both the the prayers on fire and the junkyard sort of sort of period of the band is uh, there was like the various muses of the musicians and stuff that were involved in the thing and i always thought it was very good that unlike you know some other people you know the you know, who have had records that they've made where the lyrics or the music or anything like that has come from their significant other or anything where they still just go Jagger Richards, you know, or, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, I think it's always good that, you know, on the insides of those records, uh, people like Anita and Genevieve and Katie and I, they are always 
credited whether be, they, yeah. they was for being there kind of thing or whether they actually did, uh, you know, write, you know, the lyrics for something, you know, like uh, – I don't know. Was it a dead song that Anita yeah, wrote? Yeah, I think I think it was a dead song, and it's it's interesting too because you know, and I and I I think that was a prequel almost to with, with that individual crediting towards like the greater thing that happened more towards like the eighties post punk stuff of people. Uh, you know, putting thank yous to like fellow bands, like fellow travelers and stuff, which for folks like myself yeah. was, was uh, you know, you would get a record of a band you like and then, oh, who did they thank in here? Like, who else is here? And then, yes. would, <laughs> again, before Wikipedia, and where you could just like, you know, da, 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 oh, there yeah. you go. <laughs> well, that's, that's why, of course, we all grew up in, that's why we grew up in record stores, right. pouring over any kind of liner notes, because if all of a yeah. sudden, so who's the girl who's singing on this Led Zeppelin record? Yeah. What's that? You know, oh, she's in a band called Fairport Convention. Yeah. Well, what a Fairport Convention sound like? You know, like, oh, they're all folky kind of stuff. You know, they've got this cool guitar player. What's going on there? You know, like. Unravel so, and, the and, and, thread and kind of follow it down the way. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and you know, still happens to this this you know very day and and you can still blow people's minds by telling them oh but so-and-so played on that or this thing or that, they just stole that from here listen to this record and people go, fuck you know <laughs> like well, I, I didn't know that you go oh yeah come on you well, know. well a minor uh mind-blowing piece of trivia that a lot of people don't know about you phil is that the whole psychedelic furs thing because the idea of going from the birthday party to the psychedelic furs <laughs> is uh kind of remarkable for someone that didn't have that context or from a reference at the time yeah, it was interesting. What happened was, uh, so I was out of the birthday party. So what happened was we'd just come back from uh, Europe and we'd uh, done a, a gig in, um, no, we'd done a television show in Holland and they wanted, well, had we mimed and they wanted us to sync the music. Anyway, I went out to some studios uh, in uh, Ealing with uh, Mick Harvey and we were mixing something uh, from some live tapes or something from Europe. And uh, we broke uh, for lunch or coffee or something like that. And I'm sitting there with Mick and we're talking about how the band's going to move to Berlin. And I'm going, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm cool to go and tour, tour in Berlin, but I really prefer living in London. And so I'm happy to just like, you know, to, you know, to and fro on the train and stuff, come in, do the recording. He goes, no, 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 Phil, you don't seem to be understanding what I'm saying here. The band is going to Berlin. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, uh, like talk, yeah, that's the statement of intent. But, uh, this is a thing that's going to happen. Uh, so, yeah. But you are, you are not. But that's, you, are, you, are, you are staying in London, aren't you? Right. Okay. So yeah, look, the fix have been in for a little while, but that's, that's all, you know, all historic type stuff. It's all cool. Uh, and, uh, what happened was I was basically going to go back to Australia, uh, and either, you know, regroup, you know, go back to see my girlfriend, all that kind of stuff. You know, I had, we had thoughts about getting married and junk. And, uh, so basically I was, uh, biding my time. We were, the last gig we played at the venue, we basically, we had a sold out house with no overhead. We took the entire cash pot after we'd, uh, you know, paid for, um, some, the mixer and a few things and, uh, basically just split it five ways. And I came out with, you know, quite a few hundred pounds and that was certainly enough to get me home. Uh, and, uh, so I was kind of gearing up for that kind of thing. And I got, uh, at the very last gig, uh, Richard Butler and John Ashton from the psychedelic first were at the show and they came backstage afterwards. And there was a bit of a funny exchange between Richard and Nick where, uh, Nick put his cigarette out in Richard's drink. And so it was, you know, <laughs> 
And uh, and uh, they, you know, had seen the show and they knew what kind of band we were kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, I get a call from their manager. No, um, Chris Carr, who was our publicist, uh, called me up and said, I've just had a call from Les Mills, who's the manager of the Psychedelic Furs. And... Um, I said, yeah, so what? He said, well, they, they're interested in you playing drums. And I said, oh, well, give me, give, me, give me a call. So they call me up and uh, they say, oh, we, we have just finished this record with Todd Rundgren. Uh, we're about to go out on the road in America and our drummer says he's quit. He doesn't want to be in the band anymore. So we've got tours booked and we, you know, and yeah. we have to be. We have to fly out of here on the um, something of September, yeah. uh, start rehearsals in New York, and we don't have a drummer. And so they said, we're rehearsing down at this place uh, in Camden Town. I said, well, I live in Camden Town, so that's easy. So I went down there. Uh, they had all their gear there. We set up, uh, and I, I only knew the first record. Uh, I didn't know the second record at all, uh, and uh, I hadn't heard that first record probably really since, um, you know, 89, yeah. 79 in, in Melbourne when it was sister Europe and things like that. And so um, I jammed with them for a day and I said, look, I'm going back to Australia. I said, if you need someone to practice with you while you audition drummers, then let's leave all the gear set up and I'll do that. At least you're getting your chops up uh, for what you're doing and you can bring drummers right. through and just in and out. And uh, they said uh, – uh, okay, and uh, their manager said, and we'll pay you, you know, uh, 50 or 60 quid a week while you're doing that or something like that, and, and we'll buy you drinks. And I said, yeah, that's fine. Uh, but then the more I did it, the more I liked it, and uh, they brought in a keyboard player then, a guy called Ed Buller, uh, and so we had five pieces. We were cutting the, the stuff sounded pretty much like the records. They were happy. I was happy. And they said, will you tour in America? And I said, how much, you know? And they said, okay, it's, you stay on the wage you're on right now, plus we pay you, you know, 100 US a week while you're on the road, plus all expenses all found. And uh, that in those days was a pretty good deal. And uh, it didn't hurt me. I didn't really, you know, I wasn't part of the creative process. It was just, I was just playing as, you know, a, a, a drummer. Yeah. But the more we all played together, we became quite good friends. Uh, and uh, it became like all talking about what the next record would be like. And uh, John Ashton and I were sort of trying to say, well, let's get away from this much straighter kind of stuff that you're doing and be a bit more uh, towards the experimental side of things and really let John's guitar stuff go out there and be more overarching and kind of, you know, a bit more kind of frippy and things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, a little weirder. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and say, try and take the rest of the instrumentation along with that but the singer and the bass player wanted to keep it very much they were really into the idea that um, they wanted to have uh, chart success in the United States uh, you know <clears throat> really you know, I, I remember you know thinking later on uh, I think what John was probably angling for was probably something more towards where you two ended up going and uh if they had if they had them opted for using producers like you know Flood or Eno or um, you know or stuck with Steve Lillywhite or something like that rather than going for you know Todd Runner and then going for Keith yeah. Forsey and really trying to go for you know um, uh, the mainstream kind of you know what. You know, but look, they were incredibly successful afterwards. Uh, they toured, they still tour. You know, yeah, seems like they did. Those. Yeah, they did all right. I mean, did yeah. you ever? Uh, basically, I got the bullet once again. The the um, the record producer Keith Forsey came in. He's a drummer, uh, and he's also. Uh, 
a uh, very big user of drum machines at that point in time. He was an incredible programmer of uh, the Lin drum machine, which was really finding favor at that point in time. And they pretty much decided to do the whole of that Mirror Moves record with um, a drum machine. I think they used... Tommy Price, um, Billy Idol's drummer, to comp over the top of it. I'm not sure. You'd have to check that on your Wikipedia. So I, I don't know about that. Uh, we'll get, we'll not, get our fact checkers on it. <laughs> yeah, well, after that, I think after that, Paul Gristo came in and played drums for them for many years after that. He's, he's a good guy and a good drummer. Um, so, yeah, and basically after that I ended up – well, basically I was in New York on my way to Los Angeles to start recording the album. I'm staying with uh, a friend who works for William Morris Agency, a girl called Marcy Weber. Ed Buller was with me. Poor Ed had to sit on the aeroplane next to me all the way from England to America, and he already knew that the fix was in. <sighs> and, he, and, and so I'm in the I'm – the, I'm in the apartment in New York, New York, and basically I get the call from Les Mills. He goes, "Why well, going? Well, I'm flying out to LA tomorrow." He goes, "No, no, I'm the band. You, you know, you're out of the band. Keith wants to use drum machine. We don't need you." Uh, he said, uh, "You got you got two choices. You got a return plane tic- to, ticket to the UK, or you've got a, uh, a one way ticket to Australia. What do you want?" And I basically said, "Give me an hour." Uh, I went and bought a bottle of vodka, uh, and I think. Back. He called me back in an hour. I said, the ticket to Australia is going to cost me more, so I'll have that. I said, you know, that's, you know, like, give me, you know, whatever's going to hurt you the most is what I'm taking. <laughs> and they, understandable they me, in that situation. I mean, geez. You know, they gave me a, they gave me a thousand bucks and a ticket to Australia, and that was the end of it. Uh, so, yeah, I went back to Australia. Um, I played a bit of session. I drove taxis for a while. And then uh, there was a band that was basically made up of people who used to come and watch the birthday party. Uh, and they were called, uh, at that time, they were called Scrap Museum. Uh, and then they basically uh, kind of tricked me into playing a show for them because, uh, you know. <laughs> so the singer rang me up and said, oh, we've got this gig. We've got a single launch coming out for our thing and scrap museum uh, but I'm really worried that our drummer Frank's about to quit and uh, he said you know so if he quits uh, you know would you cover for him and do this show which is booked for this yeah. date in like yeah, 10 days time or something like that and I said oh well this is one show and everything and you're, you're stuck I said sure you know I, I can pick up those tunes quick and uh, you know, two hours or three hours later he goes man Frank quit <laughs> <laughs> ah, who could have predicted <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, obviously Frank got the fucking push, man. Yeah, so yeah, just, yeah. Just, to get me, just to get me in. So uh, anyway, so I ended up being in that band for five years so or six years or something like that. So that, that was all good. We made, you know, three or four albums or something. I took the, We took that band back to the UK. We nearly got signed by Atlantic. We got demoed by Geffen. They were interested in doing stuff with us in Los Angeles. Uh, but it's one of those things. It didn't happen. Uh, we, we, we were fighting against Geff and they wanted us to get a, what they called a professional manager that was going to take 20% out of everything. And we said, no, we manage ourselves. And they said, we won't deal with a band that manages themselves. It was corporate rock days, you know, kind of thing. So couldn't really fight with that. But anyway, that, that, uh, that, uh, you know, that was, a, that was an interesting band, fun band. I got to do some good drumming in that, uh, Played, played on some other people's records along the way and uh, I had some other bands after that didn't at one stage I did actually pack everything up I didn't play for about a year and a half and uh, I almost felt unwell and so then somebody 
somebody said to me, oh, you, you know, I've got this band, would you play? And I said, yeah, I did that for a while. That didn't last. And then that band fell apart. It was That was almost old country, that one, mm. uh, kind of psychic old country that was kind of interesting it'll probably do really well in the states right now yeah, I was gonna but, say that's uh, pretty popular out here yeah yeah, yeah I could you know I, I can yeah because I, I I buy some of those records uh, but uh, then uh, the guitarist the, the final guitarist in that band he and I got together and then uh, I made uh, about three albums with him under some various names and we also did uh, production together on uh, this uh, this band called the Witch Hats we did a couple an EP and an album for them that he and I produced together. And he's an incredible guy, a guy called Ben Ling. Uh, and he's one of those guys, very annoying, can play anything. <laughs> I know uh, the type, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, let's put some banjo on this. Oh, it's a mandolin. Oh, I play, play lap steel on this. Oh, no, this one's like a heavy rock. You know, so this one's really fast. You're not going fast enough, Phil. I said faster. You know, it's like this is like... Yeah, so I mean, I, I've never not played except for this one time where I, I didn't play for about eighteen months, and uh, I, you know, it still brings me a lot of joy. I uh, I can't think of anything that's more fun than uh, being together in a room with uh, half a dozen other people and a you know a cold six pack of beer and playing music for you know three or four or five hours trying to work out a song i i, I couldn't tell you anything that's more fun and uh, the bit especially if it's an original song where something really comes together and it fires and you can see this song is really coming and you get this kind of tingle down the down the, the hairs on the back of your neck go up you know and you go this is really fucking you know i'm feeling it now just talking yeah, about yeah, it yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, it's like a learned experience. It's yeah. like you could get addicted. You could get addicted to that shit, you know. <laughs> well, Phil, I want to I want to thank you so much for spending so much time with me and telling telling me uh, all about all the, the wonderful stories of the birthday party and beyond. Uh, it, it's a big thrill for me, and I'm really glad that you agreed to do it. Uh, last, my pleasure. Last thing, uh, what I always ask folks at the end. It's the only thing I have that's even close to a can question. I just like hearing what people say, and you kind of answered a little bit of it just, re- just recently in that last sentence. But why do you do what you do? If I if I didn't play music, I, I seriously I think I would uh, feel incomplete. Uh, I think I was really drawn to it as a very young child. Uh, I started playing. I, I started getting my first lessons when I was about eight, eight I think. Uh, but I was actually my mum tells me I was banging on drums and stuff when I was four, like toy ones and stuff. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, and then I was really, you know, the whole thing of the Beatles and, you know, the idea of there being a band, that's like this gang where you're all in it together and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm still really incredibly down on the current, uh, trend for people to be in eight or 10 different bands at once. I think you've got to dedicate your heart and your soul and every piece of your, your, your waking day and your, your, your thought processes to the music that you're making at that point in time. I think that if you, if you, it doesn't seem real to me. I reckon if you're, if you're in a band, it's almost like being in a gang, you know, you should have a a matching jackets with the name on the back and uh, you know, you should exchange blood through cuts on your wrists and things like, you know. Sure. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It's got, it's got got to be almost that mentality, you know, 
know, it's going to, you're going you're to be a jet all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day, you know. Uh, so that's, that's why I do it. I don't want to ever stop. Uh, you know, I've had friends say to me, oh, I'm never going to stop doing this. I'll be sitting on a rocking chair on my front porch playing my blues guitar. And I go, no, hang on. How come you're doing that corporate job and driving that BMW and you sold all your guitars? What happened, you know? And uh, I've never, I've been fortunate that uh, I've been able to continue to play and that, uh, and I still get an awesome charge out of uh, someone turning me on to a new band and then me liking their record or going and see, I went and saw um, a star crawler. I thought, this is great. You know, fuck that. They're going off on stage. They're absolutely manic. The chick is insane. The guitar player is blistering. Uh, and they did 45 minutes of, I wasn't bored for a second. And I'm going, I haven't seen that for a while. I'm glad it's still out there. So, you know, that, that made me happy for a few moments. You know, we, there's that other band, I think that's playing around in America at the moment, Amel and the Sniffers. They're yep. from, and you know it's okay it's you know it's very thrashy and very fun and very irreverent but you know people are drinking beer and jumping around it's great you know it's great phil thanks so much man it's it's been so great talking okay to you. nice to meet you all right all right brother check it oh and there he goes the man phil calvert all right uh live listeners we got music on with music off next. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Protonic Reversal.
All right. That was Big Jesus Trash Can and King Inc. Respectively, two songs by one of my favorite bands of all freaking time, The Birthday Party. And that was Phil Gaffer from The Birthday Party that just was nice enough to spend some time with us and then talk about uh, talk about that stuff. Good times. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. The name of the show is Conan Neutron's Protonic Reversal. The show airs on radionope.com. Let's see, yes, the note. The show airs on Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific. I think it's like 10 a.m. Melbourne time. Archives at radioneutron.com or protonicreversal.com. Either of those will work now. Patreon.com slash protonicreversal. Mr. and Mrs. America, all the ships at sea. A dollar a month, you'll get all the episodes sooner and uh, help support the show. Not compulsory, though. That was Phil Calvert of the birthday party, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, thanks, everybody, sharing the episodes around. Uh, yeah, uh, it helps people find the show, so that's a wonderful thing. Thank you so much for uh, for doing that. It's always appreciated. Stay tuned. Stay safe. Can you hear me now? And take it easy. Out on Route 128, dark and lonely. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? to my top 10.
like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. Special girl! It's the, it's the end of radio! The last announcer plays the last record! The last what? Leaves the transmitter! Circles the globe in search of a listener! Can you hear me now? If there's no one there to receive It's the end of radio As we come to the close of our broadcast day Thank mm-hmm. you.